0: Hey, David. How are you today? What's up, Liberty? Thanks for having me. So good talking to you. It's, uh, I'm feeling so happy right now because I'm going to be able to share this conversation with other people because I, I've loved so much previous conversations, but nobody else is benefiting. So it's a good day. It was funny. Last time we talked, I think it was like an hour and a half at the end
1: because we were talking about podcasting a lot, too. And I was like, well, we just, we just made a podcast. We just didn't record it. <laughs>
0: exactly. Yeah. When you said that, I was like, OK, the next one has to be recorded. For sure. So I think when I don't know where to start, because I've got so many questions and topics for you, but when I don't know where to start, I guess the beginning is always a good place. So can you introduce yourself a bit for people who don't know you, don't know what you do? Like, where do you come from? What were what you, you doing before? What are you doing now? So when I hear questions like that, I always think, it reminds me of when I was in school. Like the
1: first day of school, you stand up, you're like, I'm David and this is what I do. <laughs> um, really, the, the main thing I think about, I get... The thing i like, can't stop thinking about is i think most people will know me just from the founders podcast essentially like i spend almost all of my time reading biographies of entrepreneurs studying the history of entrepreneurship and then making episodes about every single biography or autobiography that i read in hopes that some of the notes or highlights that i personally thought were interesting were valuable to people as they listen and Since this is a podcast, I think talking about podcasting is actually really interesting. And so my obsession with audio, spoken word audio, has predated podcasts by a long period of time. Like I'm obsessed with music too, but even, you know, when I was a teenager, high school, early days of college, there was no such thing as a podcast, right? So I was obsessed with listening to all forms of talk radio, and it could be uh, sports talk radio, news talk radio, political talk radio. Uh, I used to listen to the show that, you know, it'd be like a, an advice, almost like an advice column, but in audio format. Howard Stern, anything like just hearing other people th- speaking was fascinating. And you used to have to do that, as you know. You know, you turn on a dial on a radio and just, right. if there's a show on from 11 to 1, like got to be there or you missed it. And then a lot of those shows were then, say, hey, hey, we have this new thing called the Internet, now you can stream it on your computer, and like you'd, you'd have to, if you had slow internet speed, you'd have like the buffer, so you'd miss part of the radio show, or whatever the case is. And so, as soon as podcasting came out, I got really interested. I was actually a few years late into it. I started listening to podcasts in like two thousand nine, two thousand ten. But once I discovered, it, I was like, oh, I was completely obsessed. I was obsessed with the medium of podcasting for a good probably six years before I started Founders. And then even when I started Founders, if you go back and look at the early uploads, the first upload I ever did was in 2016. It was completely random. I would just read a book, decide, hey, I want to make a podcast about this book. And then I wouldn't upload again for like another three months, four months, six months, whatever it is. And it wasn't until 2018 where I can remember the exact moment where I was like, this, you should follow your energy, David, because you're completely obsessed with this thing and you think it's just like a hobby or something fun to do. But why don't you try to do it full time? And I couldn't sleep one night. I was in bed. My entire family's asleep. And I reread Paul Graham's essay, How to Do What You Love. Yeah. And it was like a lightning strike. And I was like, okay, I want to do this for the rest of my life. I love doing it. I want to turn it into not just a hobby, I want to do that. I want to think about it every waking hour. So I just made a commitment right there. I was like, I'm willing to spend every last dollar I have to be able to be a podcaster.
0: Awesome. And I think you talk about this on the podcast, but, you know, find a thing that to you feels like play and to others feel like work. As you say, you, you weren't even getting paid. You were, you were thinking about it as a hobby, but you were already doing it. But you'd ask most people to produce, you know, anywhere close to the rate at which you produce. Like, you're not like reading some Wall Street Journal article and then podcasting about it. It's like long books. Like, right, you were talking about Titan, like big bricks. <laughs> <laughs> like, you'd have to pay some people a lot to do that, like, week after week after week for years and years. And to you, it it seems like you'd still do it even if there were no money in it.
1: Not only did I do it for no money, I paid to do it. So I went through, I'm not even going to say the number. It was an insane amount of money until I got to the point, because growing a podcast is extremely hard. Now, one of the benefits of that is like once you do grow it, it's extremely sticky. The people that listen will listen usually for a long time. They'll recruit their friends. Like It just takes a very long time. It's unlike any other, I think, form of content out there it's so difficult to ask somebody for an hour, hour and a half of their time if they don't know who you are. Like when I started the podcast, I had no social media presence. Uh, I'm certainly not famous, rather introverted. And so I had to figure out a way. It's like, how can I get this thing off the ground? And, you know, that took several years to the point where it's just like, okay, now it covers my bills. And then from there, once I got to that point, I was like, all right, now I'm doing this twenty I'll do it seven days a week, which I still do to this day. And you just keep investing and you just, it's like anything else. So you could just see the compounding. Every month, there's more people that listen, more people subscribe, more people are telling the, you know, other people and it just grows and grows and grows like that.
0: Yeah, and the medium is so interesting. I, I'm just like you, like I started listening to podcasts maybe like 2012 or something like that. And the medium is so different from anything else. I, I feel like a lot of the reasons are like evolutionary psychology and all that. Broadcast radio has been around for a long time but that voice was not like the authentic human voice in many ways right if you're trying to you know sell soap and ads to the most number of people you have to kind of create this voice that's kind of like kind of appealing to everybody but not anyone in particular the most kind of bland way possible so everybody you could hear on the air had kind of like this this kind of fake personality in some ways i feel like podcasting the long tail of niches that you could find you could have people you know speaking with their real voices for the first time and still reaching enough people to make it you know viable because if you're around in your like village or something like you won't find the audience, but if all of a sudden you have the internet you have the whole planet accessible, then you can find enough people to make it you know something that's self-sustaining reading is kind of unnatural to humans right we, we get pretty good at it, but we, you still have to learn it and it's kind of like I don't know, it's not as natural as listening to someone speak. We, we've we evolved for so long, like sitting around the campfire. And during those evolutionary timelines, anybody you heard in your in your ears talking in a real voice, conversational voice, was probably a close friend or family, right? And so there's podcasts that I've been listening to for about 10 years now, where I've heard the hosts speak more than pretty much anybody in my life pretty much all of my friends probably only my wife that I've spoken more to than these people so the the kind of relationship that you can develop with someone on a podcast is very very special i feel like i listen to a ton of podcasts but some have uh, are closer to my heart right yours is one of my favorite uh, the acquired guys also do a great job and i feel like one thing that makes your podcast and other special is this this level of like it is your real voice all right so i listened to your podcast for a while and then we started chatting and then when we spoke for the first time it's like an old friend, right? It's, it's not, it, wasn't, it wasn't a fake relationship just because it was one way for a while. It was the real you that was hearing all these hours. So yeah, it's, it's no wonder the relationship is so sticky. On the technical side, the, the fact that it's RSS that you subscribe to and you know you don't have to do anything and you get the new episodes, like that's, that's great, right? You don't have to convince people every time to come back. But even without that, just on a psychological point of view, I feel like podcasting is, is unique. I think it's a miracle. So the reason I love what you just said, because so I have a folder on my
1: phone of like screenshots, quotes. There's probably like 500 to 1000 things in there. I just anytime I have a free moment where I want to be inspired or just like a prompt for thinking, I go pick it up. And you just said something while you were talking. It's like, I got to grab something out of that folder because it's about the fact that one human talking directly to another is as old as language. Right. And so I saw this tweet. This tweet came out in 2017 and I saved it. And the guy says newspapers were a fad. The village storyteller is as old as language. Only there are 6 billion villagers and podcasts are the campfire. And so I had mm. a friend of mine, I've had basically like the same set of friends, right? For like probably 20 years, right? And as you obviously get older, you start having kids, you get married. It's harder to make like friends as adults. Now, all of my friends, my new friends are coming from the podcast for that same reason. Where they may listen to the podcast, they like it, they know we have the same interests. Maybe we think similar earlier. And what happens is like when you start talking, they're like, oh, like having dinner with you or being on a Zoom or being on a phone call is just like just like getting a podcast. It's the same thing. And so yes. you use the word authentic. I think that's extremely important. So I was talking to now a friend of mine that I met through the podcast. And he's like, hey, I love this idea. So he's running this very successful business. And he's like, I like Jeff Bezos' framework that I learned from your podcast about when he was starting Amazon. He's like, you need to build your business around things that won't change. And so he's like, if you are fairly confident that something's not going to change over the next 10 or 20 years, you could invest a lot of energy and money behind that. So he's like, in my own thinking for Amazon, I was like, okay, well, what's not going to change about my business? He goes, people aren't going to wake up 10 years from now. I'm like, I wish you, I got my package slower, Jeff. I wish you had less selection, Jeff. I wish you charged more, Jeff. And so he's like, those three things, I just put an unbelievable amount of energy and investment into. And I knew that the benefits of those would compound and I could, you know, Amazon would benefit from them for multiple decades. And so he threw the, that question at me. He's like, what do you think in podcasting won't change? And I was like, I have no idea because my view of podcasting is very different from other people. It was like, oh, there's too many podcasts. Oh, I can't believe, like, it's too saturated. It's like, no, I believe 180 degrees different. We are at the very beginning of a gigantic technological revolution. And it, I use the word miracle where it turns the spoken word into the same reach that the printing press gave to the written word. Hmm. And so when people are like, oh, I can't believe you know, somebody else is starting a new podcast. That to me, that's like saying, Hey, you know what? We have enough music. No, yeah. no one make any more music. Hey, books, we have enough of those books. Most of the books don't sell. Don't write any more books. Movies, we got millions. Don't make any of that. It's like, no, like that. We're, we have no idea what podcasting is going to look 10, 20, 30 years now. But one thing that won't change, and the reason my podcast is set up how it is, which is like I don't have intro music, I don't have ads. I, when I do the podcast, I talk directly to one person, yes. right? And
0: I, I don't. I feel that.
1: Yeah. And I, I get that feedback all the time i never understood when i was watching youtube videos right they they always start the video it was like hey guys and i'd look around i'm like what guys i'm watching this video by myself there is no guys it's just me and you and so we've talked about this in private conversations where i think it's really helpful if somebody wants to start a podcast like put a picture of a friend in front of you you know and just like i'm talking directly to that person but the idea that i had when i started founders was like hey, man, it would be kind of cool. Like, what if you could meet up with your friend once a week and he would just tell you about interesting things from this book that he read? How many people could possibly be interested in that? My guess is like, I'd be interested in that. I got this idea from Tim Urban where he, from Wait But Why, he's like, listen, when I write a blog post or a book or whatever case is, he's like, I just write for Tim because I know there's at least 100,000 Tims out there that are just like me. And in his case, his audience is obviously a larger. He's like, there wasn't 100,000 Tims. Turns out there was millions of Tims. And so I think that the same way, it's like how many people are interested in history, entrepreneurship? Like if you look at my natural interest, right? Founders sits in the middle. I like entrepreneurship. I like reading. I like podcasts and I like history.
0: That's what Founders is. Yeah. I don't remember the name, but there's a a law, right? And one of those laws, which says something like, the internet is bigger than you think, even if you take into account this law, right? So everybody's like, oh, I'm just doing my little thing. Like who's going to care about that, right? It's kind of like when I started my newsletter, Just did it for me, right? Just stuff that interests me. And who's gonna be at the intersection of these Venn diagrams where it's like deadwood jokes and like (laughs) Soviet nuclear submarines and finance stuff? Like it's all kind of pretty random, right? It's not something that you could easily make a pitch for. And yet somehow some people seem to like it, right? So to go back to the authentic part, it feels like people who try to have this big master plan in advance where they like they oh I'm gonna target this No, like if you don't find it interesting, what are the chances that someone else is going to find it interesting right it's like start with yourself start with the audience of one and i've been influenced by what you said about speaking to someone specific i'm trying to learn that when i podcast by myself because it's very different like when i'm talking to you i can feed off your energy but when i record it's just like i didn't ask me anything when i'm just alone with a mic right and it's like who am I talking to? The brain kind of looks for an audience. And if, if you grab onto the, the usual, like, hey, guys, <laughs> <that's, Yeah. laughs> it's, it's so weird, right? It's, I don't know. I'm kind of thinking about the same thing with writing. And the newsletter, it's, it's too easy to have this kind of amorphous audience in mind where it's like, oh, all of you, right? But no, 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 no. It's like, I'm talking to you. And that's super powerful. I, just, I have one other thing about authenticity, because yeah. I think that's
1: an extremely important point. Humans crave it. Right. And the best demonstration of this is like, look at if you turn on like a cable news show, at least in America. Right. They're on a fancy set. They have lighting. They're wearing makeup. Somebody else has like written out the words they're going to say. Many cases they're wearing like business suit up top and like shorts and and sandals underneath. It's completely fake. Right. And then you have maybe 200,000 people or 50,000 people watching any time. And you take somebody like the biggest podcast in the world where it's like Joe Rogan, go back and listen to his very first episodes. And even the episodes he does now, it's just like three hours completely unedited. He's hanging out with somebody he likes that he's genuinely interested in. They're getting up to go to the bathroom. They're cursing. They might be drinking. They might be smoking. They might be laughing at funny things on the Internet. Why has that attracted 11, 12, 13 million people? Because it feels like you're hanging out with your friend if me and you were in person, we'd watch a TV or maybe having a drink or whatever the case is. And just that it's not scripted. The conversation is going to go in unpredictable ways just before we started recording. You're like, I never know what I'm going to say. I don't either. When I sit down to record founders, I have the book, I have my notes, I have my highlights, but I don't have a script. It's just like what I really wanted it to be is like, if I sat down with you at dinner and I talked about this book, sometimes I'll be in the middle of a thought, like, Oh, wait, I'm going to stop that thought. I'm going to, they maybe think of something else. I'm going to go over here. I'm not interested. I, there's very few scripted things I watch in general, other than like the movies. I really lo- love films, and I actually think uh, the way I think about. I realized because I read the biography of George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Francis Ford Coppola. I got a bunch of other biographies of filmmakers in this giant stack of books that's on my feet right now, and I realized I was like, oh, the way they think about making films, I think about podcasts. It's right. the exact same
0: thing. I watched a Steven Spielberg documentary because of your episode about him. And as you say, it's like, it's one of the things I see in you. It's the power of focus, right? When you figure out what it is you want to do and you, there are so many distractions. It's so easy to try to start new things because, you know, the honeymoon phase is over and like, this isn't, this isn't novel anymore. Let's try something else and something else. And if you can figure out what it is you really want to do and focus on that for long enough that I have this theory that. The internet is really good at finding good stuff over time. Most people start out and they quit before that happens, right? If they are just stuck with it for a longer time and more iterations, that improved a bit more. And then over time, people find it. It feels like this is kind of like the benefit of focus and of long-term thinking that is so rare to see. I guess it's part of the, of being authentic because if you're just trying to do something because you think it's going to be successful or because you saw someone else do it. And so I'm going to do that too. How long can you stick with that when it doesn't work? If the whole point of doing it is it's going to work and it doesn't work for six months, for a year, who's going to power through if your your engine inside is just, I'm going to get a trophy soon, right? But if you do it because you love it, then all of the other goals are a lot more possible, right? They're kind of a symptom of just sticking with it long enough. I don't know. So I have a benefit of the
1: fact that I spend... Seven days a week, reading biographies of people that were so remarkable that somebody wrote a book about their life. Think about like that is a, the tiniest percentage of all humans that have ever existed. And I think I combine it with what Warren Buffett said. He's like, it's really important. Like you choose the right heroes. The fact that he had like a hero of like Ben Graham and other people that he's talked about over and over again in his shareholder letters and his biographies. And so what I look at through the, the research for my podcast, like now I have a ton of entrepreneurial heroes, like my own entrepreneurial Mount Rushmore. And whether it's Steve Jobs, Enzo Ferrari, David Ogilvie, Charlie Munger, Henry Singleton, Edwin Land. I mean, the list just goes on and on about the people that I'm super inspired by. Uh, Paul Orfala, the, the guy from Kinko's. It's just completely un- unique operating system on how to build a business and, a, and to build a life. What I realized that they all had in common is they followed their own drift, to use the quote from Charlie Munger. But they did what they did for an extremely long time. You know, the, the reason that... Everybody's like, oh, it's so cliche to study Steve Jobs. I take the exact opposite approach. You haven't studied enough. You need to reread these books. I've read like 10 books on them. There's probably 10 episodes in the, in the Founders Archive about them. And I'll read every single thing that I could find about him Because it's like, how rare is it that somebody made... He evolved as a person, but you go back and talk to like a 19-year-old Steve Jobs when he was working for Nolan Bushnell at Atari. And it's just like, Nolan Bushnell, right, was the founder of Atari. He was running, Nolan Bushnell is, is interesting in his own right, because at that time, it was standard operating procedures. Like, okay, the young person founds the technology company. The venture capitalists replace him with adult supervision, quote-unquote. Right. Nolan ran Atari. And so Nolan's like 27. He hires Steve Jobs, and he said, he goes, there was something indefinable. He goes, there's something indefinable in an entrepreneur that I saw in Steve Jobs. He's like, he just had it. And the reason I, I want to bring that to uh, your attention is because, like, Steve Jobs made great products when he was in his 20s. 30s 40s 50s so like starting in the end of 70s every decade from the 70s 80s 90s 2000 and 2010 the ipad right before he died that's amazing how many people did found what they love to do first of all i'm very jealous because i didn't find what i wanted to do till i was in my early 30s right but he found it when he was really young let's say 18 19 20 years old right away right and then he did that until he died and he found
0: it but he also created right like it, a lot of what he did didn't exist before when, when he was growing up basically computers didn't exist and him and was were part of the first wave and every subsequent wave they found a new direction to take this kind of market in right they didn't always win commercially but as far as not just copying what others were doing like that's something incredible Few people are that successful that long at doing exactly what they want to do yeah totally agree
1: well that's also why the format of founders is uh, unique right my personal podcast hero is dan carlin i think he's the best of hardcore history i think he's the best podcaster's ever lived and so he inspired me he's like i wanted if i do a podcast one day i'm going to do it as a solo endeavor right i also did that because there's a ton of uh, podcasts in entrepreneurship space that got a head start and they're really good at interviewing and people think they they might look at like a joe rogan and be like oh He's just sitting around goofing off for three hours. How hard can that be? To be entertaining and keep somebody's attention for three hours are the example I always use. So I get a lot of people that listen to the podcast and they're like, hey, uh, I want to start a podcast. Do you have any advice? And so we just talk about it. And usually it's the same format. They're like, I want to interview entrepreneurs and investors. I was like, okay, are you going to like, are you going to do a better job than Patrick O'Sonohy at Invest Like the Best? Are you going to do a better job than like Tim Ferriss? Like, what they're doing looks easy because they put in so much effort. And now they've done hundreds of episodes. And not only that, before they even started a podcast, they were diligent in learning. They read a lot of books. They were extremely uh, inquisitive. They were curious. They took notes. They kept that. It's not like they learned something when they were in their 20s or 30s and then just forgot it. They kept, they kept reviewing it. They pushed it forward. They added on to it. I was like, you can do that. But they just seem to me like they're so far ahead of you. Like, find a different angle. Podcast is a medium. That's what people... I I talk to so many people, they don't seem to understand. It's just a medium. It could be whatever you want. It could be an interview podcast. It could be a highly scripted podcast like Gimlet. It could be a solo show like mine or or Dan Carlin's. But there's all these other undiscovered formats. It's not settled. Just be creative with it.
0: Yeah, and also, if you you want to do something unique for a long time, I think it helps a lot if... Not sure how to phrase it, but if you keep a lot under your own control, right? So if you're interviewing other people, a lot of the quality of the show will depend on the quality of the guests. And a lot of that may not be under your control for a very long time, right? Uh, but if I write a solo newsletter or if you do a solo podcast, almost everything you need is under your control. And so it's still easier to iterate quickly. And you also have to figure out, like, what is your skill set? And this applies not just to
1: podcasts, newsletters, it's any work that you do. And so we were talking earlier and I've been thinking, I was like, what is my skill set? And I was like, well, if you put me in a room alone with a book, a microphone, a lot of espresso, I'm going to come out every five days with a recording, an audio recording that you can listen to whenever you want, that'll benefit your career. That is my skill set. And the reason I say I, can feel, I, I compare like, how I feel about podcasting to how filmmakers feel about making film, if you listen to uh, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, any of the, Francis Ford Coppola, they, they say, they're like, there's something inside of me I have to get out. If I'm not now right now, we talked about like I'm rereading Titan, right? 600, almost 700 pages, extremely dense material, extremely important material. By the time I release this, by the time I sit down and record, and hopefully I'm going to do it on Friday, you know, I probably spent 50 hours. That's not an exaggeration. 50 hours researching for every 90 minutes of the podcast I make, right? And I couldn't do that if I had to rely on other people's schedule or if I couldn't just shut myself down in I say a room, but you could see like, I know people listening can't see me, but you can see me. I'm in a sound, it looks like a soundproof phone booth. It's the size of a phone booth, but it's soundproof. This is where I record all my podcasts. And I could just sit in here. I close the door. I hear nothing that's taking place outside. And I'm just alone with, I, it gets my full attention to what I'm doing. And I want to tie this this into what you just, you mentioned the, the importance of focus. It's like, that's not even my idea, right? The The fact is like, There's a lot of opportunities that pop up, you know, when you put your work out there and it resonates with certain people. And so in like the podcast space or the newsletter space or any kind of, you know, creating online space, sometimes they're a means to an end. And that makes perfect sense because they're very valuable. There's a lot of people that make podcasts because it's like content marketing for their business. That works, that's really smart. You're giving value to the world. Nothing wrong with that. Some people do it because they want to sell ads. Some people want to do it because they want to get deal flow. All this stuff makes a lot of sense, especially when you get to a certain size, like it gives you an unbelievable competitive advantage. But I can't do that because podcasting is not a means to an end for me. It is the end.
0: Yeah, it's the thing, right? It's the the goal in itself. It's the infinite game that you found that you want to keep playing. I was talking to MBI about this a while ago in the newsletter space and how much competition there is, but it's very rare to find people who want just like the writing is the thing that they actually want to do, right? Most of them, like, maybe, okay, they they got out of a job and they don't know what to do for a while, so they start a newsletter and it's a way to kind of, you know, market themselves and then someone comes and hires them and then they leave the newsletter business. Maybe they become huge and then they start a fund and the newsletter was a way to raise AUM and get deal flow, as you say. So most of the time, competitors don't stick around because they weren't in it for the writing in the first place. Podcasting is probably similar, right? Some of them go on to, I don't know, like, I want to do a TV show. I want to start, well, know, rocking in the writer's room. I want this or that. I want to be a stand-up comedian. But I want to come back to one thing you said about how many hours you put into each podcast. And to me, that's the magic of it. It's similar to when I read uh, a really good piece online, the amount of leverage from one step to the other, right? So someone, some expert may spend their whole life learning some skills, right? Some entrepreneur or scientist or something. And then they spend, like, I don't know, a few years writing a book about it. And then you spend like how many hours reading it and understanding it and then you do a podcast and so when i listen to this one hour of your podcast you know i get a distillate of decades and decades of experience and one thing i love about your podcast is i wish i could be able to read as much as you do now right i'm writing of young kids and so my my reading has slowed down a lot i I tried i tried to get back to it to improve but i'm kind of jealous of the amount of reading you're doing but at least with the podcast is the next best thing right But even that I think is underselling it because you could say, oh, it would be better if I read Titan, but at least if I listen to a couple hours about it, I get a lot out of it, of the the main thing, the highlights. That's when you compare one thing to one thing, right? One podcast to one book. But in the time it would take me to read Titan, I may be able to listen to 15 of your podcasts. So am I really getting less or am I getting more variety? And then the podcast that really speak to me the most, like I make a note and then I'll go read the book. So you're kind of both a source of information and value, but also a filter where you're saving me time from maybe bad books or maybe, you know, the saying like, oh, this book could have been a podcast. Well, sometimes the book should be a podcast and it's fine. Like I wouldn't get that much more by reading it, but others is like, oh no, this is the one, right? This is, this one speaks to me. This one may change my life or something. So I have to, I have to go back to the source material, but I don't know. I feel like this is such a high leverage type of arrangement. It's the same with some of my friends, like David Kim at Skullberg or MBI. Like they spend like a month reading like, transcripts and filings and books and then then they distill it all into something i can read in a couple hours the leverage there is incredible david kim once said something like oh i i'm a bit like uh, not jealous but i'm a bit like oh it's kind of strange that i have to spend 50 hours to research something and you can read it in one hour it's like no that's the magic of it if it took me 50 hours to read what you wrote i could go back to the original source right I I just read the original. But if if you're saving me that much time by kind of filtering it through someone who I trust, I I trust his judgment and his intelligence, that's a ton of value created. That's super positive sum. That's why I'm a huge fan of authors, and I'm so glad that I've been able
1: to become friends with Jimmy Sony. I know, our mutual friend. Yeah, he's amazing. Jimmy uh, did his biography of Claude Shannon a long time ago. And so when he's writing this new book on the beginning of PayPal, he reached out super early and sent me an advanced copy, right? I got one too. Yeah, exactly, because of the podcast. And then what I told him I was like man because like, I've bought probably like 40 I think I bought up to like 40 45 copies of that book so far and given out to people like that are fans of the podcast or whatever just because like I want to support what Jimmy does and it's because like how many he spent five years of intense research and study on extremely important part of technology like uh, the history of tech entrepreneurship and yet you can read that entire book in like 15 20 hours whatever the time is if you're not you know rushing through it or whatever the case is so this is the way I think about the podcast. Because everybody's like, how should I use Founders? And like, it's a weird podcast in the sense that Usually, you know, podcast players publish in, you know, the newest episode latest. It's, but I'm uh, maybe the only one of the only podcast hosts where I don't have if I do an episode right now, I will not have the full attention of my audience. Right. Because I was just in L.A. I flew to L.A. for 48 hours because there's a guy uh, named Alexis Rivas. He's founded this company called Cover. It's one of the, in my opinion, one of the most impressive private companies. And I'm not a private company investor. Right. So I don't even I literally don't think about anything but the podcast. But what he's doing, he's like trying to find a, a better home building has been taking place the same way for about 100 years. He's like, why can't we do this in factories? Why can't we do it with algorithms and software? And it's very obvious when you talk to him, it's like, oh, this dude, he's just like the people I read about. So he invited me to an event a couple of days in advance. I was like, dude, I'm going to fly out there just to meet you. I wind up going to a company event, in, uh, an event at his company. And then I meet other people that also listen to the podcast. And what's fascinating is I met this guy named Rico who works for Cover as well. And he's like, I just started at episode one. And he goes, I'm nowhere near. He's like, I think it was episode. I forgot what he told me, like maybe 60 or 70. I can't remember. You know, I've done 255. He's like, I won't hear what you're doing now for like probably a few years. And so when people say, hey, how should I use it? This is the advice that I give. If I was on your end, I'd like I would listen to two episodes a week. That means in one year, I would have downloaded into my brain the best ideas and the worst ideas the mistakes to avoid of 100 of history's greatest entrepreneurs. And then I'd pick one of those books a month and I'd read it in detail. Because these are not summaries. I am not trying to summarize the book. A book, in my opinion, a book that can be summarized is a book not worth reading. Biographies and autobiographies are worth reading in full and take your time with them, right? There's a reason why as busy as Elon Musk is, as busy as Jeff Bezos is, it's why Charlie Munger, who in my opinion is the wisest person I've ever come across, he's read hundreds of biographies. Does Charlie Munger strike you as somebody that's likely to fritter away time on useless activity? (laughs) No! No, he's a genius. And if he's telling you, hey, I'm a biography nut, I think the ideas, if you just read a business book, the ideas are not going to stick unless you can tie the ideas to the personality of the person. I need to make this point clear. Everything I'm saying, I literally do not have one original idea. I can go through my entire life never having an original idea, just studying the great ideas, the best ideas of the people that came in before me, and I will have a wildly successful, happy life these are not my ideas i'm just the one that's going to yeah. i use this term for a while it's like idea archaeology the yep. same way that an archaeologist is trying to uncover bones of dinosaurs where the case is i'm just picking up books most of the books i read are super old some of them you can't even find i've spent on individual books 300 400 150 dollars because they're so hard to find and then my job is like i gotta go digging I'm going digging for the best ideas that you and I can use in our work, and also the worst mistakes. I know you want to talk about Ed Thorpe, and the reason I keep bringing him up on podcast over podcast is because I've studied... Listen, I'm a huge fan of Steve Jobs. If you made me, and it's all subjective, but if you said, hey, who's the greatest entrepreneur in history? He's probably my choice. And if he's not your choice, that's fine. But you can't name a bunch. There's not 20, 30, 50 better entrepreneurs in history. No, that's, that's you're going to have a hard time saying that, right? But... I admire his clarity of thought. I admire yep. his work. I He was a very flawed person by his own admission. If you go and read, like he says in the Walter Isaacson book, and I don't even think that's the best biography on him. It's a great biography, but I personally like becoming Steve Jobs a little better.
0: Yes. Yeah, same. I have a whole rant about how Steve Jobs, one of his biggest mistakes was picking Isaacson as a official biographer, because while Isaacson is a great, great writer, I love his Ben Franklin, he's not... A design guy, he's not a computer guy. So, a lot of the central themes of Steve Jobs' life were kind of not Isaacson's thing. So, as I was reading the book, I was like, as a nerd, I could see all of the, you know, the little mistakes and the little misunderstandings and he was he wasn't focusing on certain things that were super interesting just because they were not, you know, part of his thing, right? So, anyway, Isaacson's I he's a
1: phenomenal writer though, yeah. in my opinion. But I'm just saying like it's not a bad one. It's just with all the material that you have there, you can write there's there should be many more biographies about him written in the future in my opinion right i just yep. had the thought when i'm reading titan i'm like okay this book's i think was published in 1998 there should be there's a market for somebody to to write a biography of john d rockefeller right now do it like paul johnson style do it 200 pages i just discovered this biographer i read churchill Mozart, his Mozart biography. I'm reading a Socrates biography. He writes, they're like 190 pages, 200 pages. So anyways, the point I was getting to was that read the Isaacson biography because Steve tells you, why did I agree to do this? Because I wanted my kids to know who I was. I wasn't around a lot because I dedicated my life to Apple and I want them to know who I was. So to me, that's not like, as somebody who grew up both sides of my family tree, there's not a lot of, I had no mentors. I had no one to emulate. All I saw was bad decision after bad decision after oh, I don't want to be like that person. Up and down the family tree for generations, right? And one thing I'm correcting and it's very important to me is like I have two kids. My kids are going to know who I am. I'm with them constantly. Right now, yeah, I work every day. Obviously when you work remote, like I see my kids all the time. Like I'll be recording a podcast I'll be reading and my son who's two will like knock on the door. Guess what? I'm stopping what I'm doing. If he wants to go play blocks or Legos or he wants me to take him to the park or the pool, that's why I want to talk about ed thorpe with you because i literally just took i read ed thorpe's biography autobiography and i'm like oh this is the guy out of every single person that i have studied what you're talking about six years thousands of hours over a hundred thousand pages 250 different biographies ed thorpe is the one that got the closest in my opinion to mastering life i was yep. just talking to my friend eric jorgensen who is um the author of the almanac and Naval, which is the the book i give most as a gift before our founder jimmy sony book right and he was like dude i like i listen to your podcast and he goes i can't help the more episodes i listen to i can't help but think i want to ask you like what is david training for like are you trying to are you going to found the next apple is like that's what you're doing this for and i'm like no i'm training for life what i'm trying to figure out because i never had a personal example is like for a certain personality type me and you included to have a contented and satisfied life we have to be really good at profession it's not something I'm trying to outsource or get away from, right? It is a huge part of my personal identity. A lot of my life energy goes into that, right? But I have read enough examples, Liberty, where people can make billions and be deeply unhappily. The best example I give, I think it's episode 168. I don't have it in front of me. It's this guy named Larry Miller, right? But his autobiography is called Driven An Autobiography. He was the richest entrepreneur in Utah. He is writing the autobiography as he is dying. And he says, mine is a cautionary tale. He's like, I have a 30,000 square foot house on the hill. I own the Utah Jazz basketball team. I own 93 businesses. He's like, I didn't know my kids growing up. I didn't know my wife. I didn't take care of my health. Literally, he's dying because he was so like, he didn't exercise. He ate terribly. His body was, they had to amputate things off of him. Hmm. Uh, he's like, all, he's, I didn't even have fun. He gets to the end of the book. And he's like, if I could do it all over again, I would have worked less. I would have known my kids. I would have spent time with my wife and I would have had fun. Think about that. The richest person in Utah
0: didn't enjoy his life. That is terrifying to me. Terribly sad. And I keep mentioning that book, but Stumbling on Happiness by Dan Gilbert as this kind of lesson where most people are very bad at predicting what's going to make them happy. And they mostly just like, it's mimetic, right? They look around what are others doing and they do that. And all this reading of other people's experiences, including the mistakes, that's what it does, right? It gives you kind of a base rate for what's actually happening, right? If you chase money all your life and you actually get it, what does it mean? Does it automatically solve all of your problems and make you happy? Not at all. Well, you can hear someone say that, right? But in the abstract, it can sound like, oh, let's be content not to have it, right? And, and let's not be jealous of these people, but deep down, we truly believe that like, they've got it made, right? But no, if you read in detail someone's life, like the words coming out of his mouth, right? Or his pen or whatever, I think that's much more convincing. And what you said about, like, if a book could be condensed, like it's not worth reading, reminds me of what what I said with uh, Cedric Chin on on another podcast. And he studies expertise, right? he studies how people learn. And uh, one of the great theories there is that the way our minds work, if you give someone just the bullet points, right, the principles, do this, do this, do this, it kind of doesn't work. If you have the whole story with all of the details, the details may seem kind of unnecessary or pointless but at the end of the day our brains are made to remember these stories and use them and you never know when the details are actually going to be useful to you, right? So Charlie Munger, he doesn't have just a bunch of bullet points and principles, he has the stories in detail. So when he sees something he can know if the principles apply because there's a lot of pattern matching around it, right? And so because life is much more subtle than than can be fit into a, a PowerPoint slide or something. That's That's one thing I love about your focus on biographies, as opposed to like trying to turn this into like a business book presentation, right? That would be pointless. When I started out learning about business, I read all these business books. The more time passes, the, the fewer of those I read. Like once in a while, there's one that comes out and, Even thinking about them, like The Outsiders, it could be categorized as a business book, but it's basically like eight mini biographies, right? It's all about the actual details of what happened, the actual stories, the actual personalities of the people and why they made those decisions exactly, right? What was the context? You can't transpose decisions outside of their context. So yeah, I think that the focus on biography is pretty much perfect. I'm kind of jealous of how evergreen what you produce is because my newsletter is kind of a mix, right? There's some stuff that you can go back a year and read, and it's still kind of out of time. But a lot of other stuff is more about like what's happening this week with the news. I think there's value in that. But I, can, I kind of wish everything could be evergreen and could be you know read in any order. But yeah, you've got a great model. No, I appreciate that. I refuse. I adamantly refuse to, to
1: read. I get book recommendations all the time. And I was like, Every minute of my time, if I'm going to be reading something for education, I still like to read fiction, science fiction, especially, but it's all biographies for me. I've given up on business books. The one exception is I just got a book recommendation from Patrick O'Sonohy of Invest Like the Best. And because I've heard his podcast so much and I know like, he reads all the time and he's dedicated himself to lifetime learning, and you can tell clearly if you go to join, like his, his website, I think it's joined Colossus. It's yeah. an incredible resource right? What they're doing over there is just incredible resource for investors and entrepreneurs. And so he's like, you should read the book, Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned. I mm. bought the book. That is the one exception. And it's only because, and obviously if you said, hey, read this book, then I would. But other than that, I'm really just trying to focus. So I want to go back to Ed Dorp, but I want to t- tackle the, the the reason why um, I'm so obsessed. See, that's another thing I was like, technically founders is a business, right? But when I realized when, like, when I talked to other people and like, What was really surprising to me is how many people, like I've had, I've turned down a ton of acquisition offers, right? I think the fifth one just came in and it's just like, I talked to them, like they're usually fans of the podcast, obviously, listen. And I was like, yeah, but you have to really, the way to understand, if you can really understand the way I think about this is like, technically it is a business. Technically, I know it has value, right? But to me, it's an obsession. I don't think, like... It is a business because I need to get paid so I can do my obsession full-time is the way I think about it. I don't right. think there's a limit to the size it can grow, right? I think of like what Steve Jobs said. He's like, listen, I I want to make insanely great products. I truly believe that my products are the best tools for your mind that anybody's ever created. So I taught myself how to make insane, insanely great products. And now if I want to fulfill my goal for every single person in the world to have an Apple device, that means we have to become not just a great company at making great products, but a great marketing company. And so he would meet every Wednesday. Uh, A lot of people don't know this. He'd spend like three hours going over. Like he showed with his actions that marketing is supremely important because I'm here, I'm showing up. He, He got to the point where like he would have to approve every single ad. It could be a billboard in the middle of Oklahoma. That is not going up until I see it and I approve it. So he's demonstrating that with his action. So I just stole that idea. I was like, the way I interpreted when I got to that section of the book was like, the way I interpreted it is if you truly believe in your heart that the product that you made is capable of making somebody else's life better, then you have a moral obligation to get good at marketing. So I am not trying to artificially constrain. I want millions of entrepreneurs, investors, anybody doing something difficult to listen to founders because I genuinely believe these ideas, like what is the chance that somebody spent 60 years building a business and they learn nothing that'd be valuable in your work That to me that's laughable like it's obvious how valuable this stuff is i hear the results constantly right and so my whole thing is just like if i get to the end of my life you know and a lot of people say david raise your prices you're not capturing enough value i understand that i have a different perspective but i understand completely understand and in many cases they're correct but it's like if i get to the end of my life and like my work has benefited millions of other people and then those millions of people have then continued to spread those ideas and like it just keeps reverberating and i only captured you know half the value that i should have i'm cool with that i'm cool with that because it's an obsession and i think what I, again i have an advantage because i read the books first right where a lot of people that put money first don't wind up getting it but when you put your obsession and quality and ser- relentlessly serving the customer you put that first you'll get the money anyways
0: it just takes longer I feel like you're building up goodwill, right? You're if you give to people a lot more than than what they give back in money, it just kind of accumulates over time, right? So someone is not going to cancel their subscription for years and years. Like you mentioned to me something, tell tell this anecdote, this is so great. So the what I also get excited about because I read these books is like
1: in every single story, what that person was doing was misunderstood by people outside of them, right? And so I love talk like my days are spent studying by reading really smart people. And then because the podcast has become like this ecosystem for extremely smart people and driven people. Now I get to talk. So like if I'm not reading and learning from like really smart people, I'm talking to really smart people from all spectrums. And what was fascinating to me is like how many people tell me, it's like, man, you should do ads. Your podcast should be free. You should just like use the podcast and then like build another company on side of it. You know, the same conversation we were having that's a means to an end. And like, I love that. I I love when smart people see things differently than me because they will even say, It's like, I I only think about this for a little bit of time. You probably think about this every day. And it's like, subscription podcasting to me, subscription audio in general, is one of the best businesses in the world. There's not another business in the world that I'd want to do. It just so happens to match up to my obsessions and things I can't stop thinking about. And part of what people don't understand is just like, the very first person I ever sold a subscription to. I know their name. I like, I remember this as if it was yesterday. They're still active. That was like four years ago. The Subscription podcasting Amazing. in general. It's not just me though. Because like I talked to the founder of the company that, that generates my private RSS feed that collects the payment. And he says, it's like company-wide, subscription podcast is less than 3% churn. You know, that's like Netflix level churn. This is not anything new. If you go study the podcast industry in China, it is like, Five seven times larger than the one in in America. It's mostly almost all subscription or paid podcasts. Huh. Almost all education. Almost all educational. Now you go to the North America or American podcast industry. It's almost like there's a lot of like you know entertainment, and it's almost all ad based. So again, not original idea. I was not the first person to sell a subscription podcast. In my opinion, like the best podcasts going, not the best podcast, but a lot of the podcasts going forward are going to choose that model. If it's a means to an end. It doesn't make sense to constrain the amount of people that can hear it. So of course, keep it free, keep it ad based. There's it's not either or. it's just, for me, it's just like, I don't want to do anything else. This goes back to your focus question. You know, people get in touch with me like, Hey, I love your podcast. You should write a book. Hey, I love your podcast. You should do a paid community. Hey, I love a, your podcast. You should start an investment fund.
0: Are you, ever hey, tempted though? are you, are you ever like considering seriously like something else? Or are you like it's on rail now? Not for one fucking minute.
1: Wow. No, absolutely not. Like, let me give you an example. So I I sent you this quote that is in Eric Jorgensen's book. It's from Naval Ravikant. And the reason I give that book away so much is because I think it's like a a really handy tool to like how to build a business in the age of infinite leverage, right? I am one person sitting alone, reading books, putting a podcast that goes out to a ton of people. I have paying customers in all six continents. I'm trying to penetrate Antarctica, right? Like I need (laughs) to find somebody down there that will subscribe. But... It's clearly like a high leverage activity. And so being, what Neval said is dead on. And I talked about this with Eric the other day through text message. Being at the extreme in your craft is very important in the age of leverage. And this hit me, right? I reread that highlight over and over again. I watched this fantastic documentary. You know, Tony Hawk, right? The skater? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So like when I was a kid, everybody loved Tony Hawk, right? He was like the godfather, like the creator of the skating industry. And so there's a fantastic documentary on HBO Max. I recommend it. Anybody that's interested in founder mentality, you know, I repeat that over and over in the podcast. It's just like, it doesn't matter if they're a filmmaker, they're building a business, they're an investor, they're a skateboarder. In Kanye West, same thing. Now that I've consumed so much information and processed so much information, it's just like, oh, that woman, she's got founder mentality. That guy, that person has founder mentality. Tony Hawk had founder mentality. And so I'm not going to summarize the documentary other than it's fantastic. And, like, he just followed his passion. He started loving skating when he was, like, 12, 13. And he never stopped. I didn't know there was like a bull market in skating. Like he got super famous and then the whole industry collapsed and he had to get a job. But he never stopped skating. Hmm. And I, I love his dedication. The way he thinks about skating is the way I think about podcasts, right? And what I realized, like, why was that so important? Like, why, what does that have to do with being at the stream of your craft is so very important in the age of leverage, right? It's because there's a, there's a scene in the documentary where he has his own skate company, makes a little bit of money, you know, being a, you know, going out and doing skate shows, right? A good living. But the vast majority of his wealth came from his video game. So in the show, he's a young kid. They hand him the first check. He goes to meeting. They're like, video game guys want to meet with me. They hand me a check, $4.5 million. And he's like, what the hell is this? Right? This is 20 years ago, 20 years ago. Then he goes, a few years later, they handed me another check, $20 million. That made me think. I went to go look up. His video game in that time, since he got that $24.5 million, right, has brought in $1.4 billion in revenue. His video game. And it's still going. He releases it it still goes to the top of the charts right so he and he's made hundreds of millions of dollars off of a video game how much did the second best skater make
0: <laughs> yeah power laws everywhere exactly
1: right? exactly that's why investors venture capitalists get this immediately right you just hit it power law rules everything around us and it's invisible to most people so if i dilute my attention your attention is valuable Right, Right. That's something I learned from Edwin Land. Edwin Land, the founder of Polaroid, who I've been trying to preach, if you're an entrepreneur investor listening to this, you've got to go study Edwin Land. Edwin Land was Steve Jobs' hero. He's one of, if I only had to pick one person to learn about entrepreneurship from, I'd probably pick Edwin Land. I've read five books on him. I've done four podcasts. There's a reason why Steve Jobs copied, and gives him credit to, more ideas from Edwin Land than anybody else. Right, Edwin Land. All he talks about over and over again. He's like, it's my mission for people to understand how valuable their attention is, how valuable concentration is, how much like intense concentration gives you superpowers. And so I apply that idea to my work, where it's like every minute that I'm not spent working on the podcast because I want to chase you know a book deal or an investment or anything else. If you're obsessed with investing, right? I talk to a ton of investors, and these are the investors that tell me I should do a fund or whatever. Then well, like I'll have dinner with them. I'm like, well, how often? Like, do you, are you thinking about investing? It's like, oh, it's just who I am. Like, um, there's no off. I go, exactly. You think I'm going to compete with guys like you?
0: <laughs> no way.
1: No way. Like, exactly. I'm not, I, I have no skill set. I have no skill set. They're like, oh, you do. And uh, all the case. And maybe they're right. But it's like, I already found the thing I'm good at. And so I took an idea from Charlie Mugger. He says, find what you're best at. I'm reinterpreting what he said. Find what you're best at and then pound away at it forever.
0: Yeah, you pick the poker table where you're going to play, right? Right. And so, if you you see a bunch of other people that you know are gonna be much better, and you you're not even interested enough in the topic to catch up to those people, like don't go play at that table, right? Find your own table, and that's the beauty of the internet. Like there's infinite poker tables, right? You just gotta find your own. Sometimes people write to me like, oh, I want to start writing, but like I'm a beginner, I'm just starting with investing. I don't know if I have anything to contribute. I'm like. That's perfect. There's millions of people just like you. Write about your journey, write as you learn, they're going to learn along with you. It's going to be much more relatable to people at a similar part of the journey to follow you than to follow like try to read a book by George Soros right away, right? It's going to be gibberish. There's always a way to figure out who's your own tribe. Don't try to copy like too many financial uh, writers they try to sound like a financial times or a wall street journal article right to be all bland and professional and oh, i'm gonna sound like so uh, authoritative right that doesn't work you can't out wall street journal the wall street journal that's why i always tell people like lean into your own personality nobody's going to be better at being you than you right i don't even know who's my competitor with liberty's highlights because like <laughs> it's so me right it's entirely based around my personality and that's kind of why In some ways, I don't feel I have as much focus as you do. But in other ways, I feel like the podcast and the writing are kind of the same thing, right? It's just the medium is different enough that the result, the resulting artifact is different enough that for some things, it's better to do a podcast because I can't get that out of the writing. But it's still kind of the same impulse. I'm trying to get at the same thing. I'm going to try to talk about stuff that interests me one of my missions is try to inject a bit of randomness in everybody's lives because everybody's a specialist nowadays that's the way to get ahead in life in many ways so all of the overachievers specialize in something and that's cool but they're so deep into their field that they never have time to kind of go outside and go look around in other fields and i feel like at the intersection of all these disciplines there's a lot of good stuff that's to be found right i'll never outcompete a specialist into their field but if i can you know put together four or five different things and do the 80 20 rules on a few things I may be able to you know find stuff that they will never find and while they may not have time to do all of the reading and research that I'm doing because I, I kind of don't have real jobs so that's what I do full-time <laughs> I can distill it you know what we were saying before into this newsletter that goes out a few times a week and then they scan around oh you know few things are interesting to them and and now they've maybe learned about you know a, a new artist a new movie a new technology a new whatever but I'm just trying to kind of inject some of that into people's lives. And I feel like it's all part of the same thing, right? The podcast is part of the same thing. Another aspect I love is, it's kind of like a conversation with the readership. So that's why I often will include stuff that people send me as feedback in the next edition, and then it becomes kind of a conversation, right? So right now I'm thinking about, should I create a kind of community, like a a chat-based thing, like in Discord or Slack, kind of like what the acquired guys have done. And so I've been mulling that for a few months, because the readers I feel is a a self-selected group of very, very cool people, right? They're very curious. They want to improve themselves. They're always looking for more stuff. And I don't feel like there's tons of places where I can go and find these people, right? I have that filter. So I'm getting a lot of benefit from this group because I'm kind of the bottleneck at the center. They're all like sending me emails and comments and stuff, but I want them to find each other and make connections and friendships with each other because I've made so many friends doing this stuff. Like I want other people to benefit. So is this kind of community, the way to do it? I don't know. But to me, it's also part of the same thing because some stuff I would learn there would go in the newsletter. And sometimes the newsletter would create the feedback for the next edition. And then I meet someone who's going to be on the next podcast. And it's all kind of like the same engine. So the format is not the same, but the impulse feels the same to me. I don't know if that makes any sense.
1: No, just like books are made out of books. Like podcasts are made and newsletters are made out of the experiences you're having. Like I just did, like, I didn't know anything about Mark Leonard. I'm not an investor, right? I learned about him from you. The reason I've mentioned you on the podcast so many times is like, hey, this is one of the only newsletters I read cuz I don't read a lot of newsletters at all. I obviously spend all my time reading books. It's because of that. It's because like you expose me to like you're just trying to be who you are, you're trying to take who you are in an extreme, right? When I open up your newsletter, I have no idea. Like I know you're going to talk about business and investing cuz that's your passion, but you're going to throw in, you know, a deadwood gif. Are <laughs> you gonna say, "Hey, I had this conversation exactly what you said." Like when I, I talked about you in the Mark Leonard episode I just did, which I think is episode two forty six, where it's just like Liberty's the one to help me organize my thoughts with this, and like obviously, we're always, it's really important for me to like link back to where I'm getting these ideas from because I want to reiterate, none of these are ideas are my own. Even this idea where we just talked about, you talked about almost two ideas that are a combination, like take your authentic self and take it to an extreme, right? No one can compete with Liberty highlights because it's just you. I really stole Charlie Munger's idea where he's like, listen, oftentimes in business, we found that the winning system goes ridiculously far in minimizing or maximizing one or a few variables. He's saying, hey, these at the core, the business idea is really simple. And then they just drill down on it. And so he used the idea of Costco, right? Mm -hmm. Very simple to understand. We can buy a ton of things cheaper than you can. We're not going to try to make money on that we're going to mark it up just so we break even and then we're going to make all money on our membership fees. That's why my wife's family has been a subscriber to Costco for 27 years. It's simple to understand. I understand the value as soon as I walk through the door and you have me forever. Yeah. That's
0: a very powerful idea. In business in general, well, I guess in life in general, almost all of the really powerful ideas are super simple, right? They're just hard to execute consistently over time. They're hard to remember. And that's why I feel like I keep writing about the same things over and over again because I'm just trying to... Refresh my own memory about these things. It's very rare to find a totally new idea. Like the details can be new, but totally general concept, right? A principle at a very high level to how to lead your life or how to have a good business. Like it's all kind of the same thing. It's all like it's like DNA, right? It's it's four letters, but you can build anything you want with it. Well, you always go back to the same few principles, right create value for people and how to lead a good life, right? Be nice so- to people, treat them as you want to be treated. Move around, eat good stuff. Like It's not that complicated, but yet you look around and it's so hard to do.
1: That's because people crave simplicity, but we overcomplicate things by our nature. And so that's why I just say no to everything. When Steve Jobs told me, right, and when I read his biography, I feel like I'm having a one-sided conversation with him. When he said focus is saying no, I didn't just read that. Like, oh, that sounds good. No, I started applying it. The answer is no, I found what I want to do. And I'm going to do—and, like, I'm just—all I'm trying to do is make it better over time and then spread to as many people as possible. But I want to hit on something that people, I think, fundamentally misunderstand because business is obviously extremely complicated. Building a a great company is incredibly hard. That's why there's so few of them, right? But when you go back and study them, it's not like they had 25 ideas. They Hmm. had, like, five principles, five ideas, six—a handful— they would repeat them over and over again. I've read a ton of books. I've read every single one of Jeff Bezos' shareholder letters. I've read three biographies on him, read all his own writing, read transcripts of his speech. He repeats the same stuff so much, they're called Jeffisms. He had like (laughs) a handful of ideas. I'm talking about less than 10. He just repeated over and over again. And he said, hey, that principle worked in retail. I'll apply it to this. And then I'll apply it over here. And I'll apply it over here. They all like this. Enzo Ferrari, Steve Jobs, any of them, they didn't have an abundance of ideas. They had a handful of extremely important ideas that they repeated to everybody. Because you have to, you have to, repetition is persuasive. And then they applied them for an unbelievable long period of time. This is why I was in a rush to try to find my life's work. Because you know how Charlie Munger says, hey, uh, you know, if you study the main concepts, it carries most of the freight, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so what I realized in my own research is like, I think time carries a lot of the stuff we see, like, time carries a lot of freight. It's just that most people, to your point, will start something, maybe they'll start for a year, they don't see any traction, you know? And they'll jump to another thing or they'll start a company. It's like, start. And there's a, like a mind virus that I see in, in the entrepreneurship industry where it's like, okay, I'm going to start it, I'm going to scale it, and I'm going to sell it, and I'm going to do it all over again. Yeah. And it's like, okay. And then when I talk to them, but when I talk to them about this, because, you know, I talk to a lot of founders like, hey, I don't know if I should sell my company. What should I do? What are cases? Like, I was like, do you have a better idea? Right. And they're like, no, this is my best idea. I go, so you're going to sell your best idea and you're going to go work on your second best idea. How the fuck does that make sense? I go, who are your your entrepreneurial heroes? Tell me who you look up to. They name them. Did they work on uh, an idea for five years? No, inevitably. If we know their name, they worked on something for at least a decade, two decades, three decades. And you're three years in
0: you want to jump out. A lot of people say the right things, but when you look at their actions, you realize that it's not really what they believe, right? It's the difference between like, show me your portfolio, right? That's what you really believe. Well, if you believe in selling your business that quickly... The goal probably always was, well, I want to have a bunch of money or I guess some people can be addicted to the early phases of a startup, right? Some serial entrepreneurs, I think they come at it from, they're really good at the early phases of a something. And then when, as soon as it becomes too big, like it's not their skill set anymore. I can understand that, but I feel lots of other people, I don't know if it's a cultural thing, if after a bunch of people do it and then people get FOMO or they get jealous. I like, oh, I I could build something too in five years and make a billion dollars, right? I don't know feels misplaced to me, right? Because as you say, you read about these people and many of them regret selling their business because they think, oh, I'm just going to do it again, right? And they don't realize how lucky they were to have it once, to have captured this lightning in a bottle once and to have a great group of people and good co-founders and found a, a place in the market where they could be leaders and have some you know, competitive advantage, whatever, right? Having all of these factors come together is not that easy. And a lot of it is not under your control. So once you have it, I would be very, very careful about, you know, letting it go.
1: And again, whatever I'm saying is like, follow. I, I take Charlie Munger's as advice. Follow your natural drift. If you're a serial entrepreneur, there I read about one serial entrepreneur, that's his personality, Jim Clark. He was happens to be the first person to found three separate billion dollar technology companies. He had no really interest. He was just like, I think of him as like the person starting a movie. He's like, I'll write the script, I'll get the characters, I'll get the props, then you go and do it. And then right. he wanted to jump off to something else, right? But my point is like, I think, a good idea that i heard from somewhere else is like you should always be working on your best idea i don't have a better idea than founders i'm not going to foreclose that i might have a future opportunity that i'm like a big problem i'm super passionate about that i absolutely have to do or i can't i like, can't think of anything else then yeah i would go do that but i'm working on my best idea again i don't think of it as a business i think of it as an obsession that just happens to generate money and so it's going to be extremely hard to compete like, say you wanted to do exactly what I'm doing now, and there's a ton of people, I think more people should do different experiment, different formats. You're going to have a hard time catching up because I'm 250 something books in that it takes some amount of time. Like, even if you started today, like how, how many, first of all, how many people on the planet have read 250 biographies of entrepreneurs? There are some people. Yeah, I'm sure there's, I know that for a fact, Charlie Munger's probably read more of them than me. Warren Buffett has probably read more than me, but that that's not a big number.
0: There's a lot fewer readers than there are people who say that read, right? Who claim to read. Uh, I don't remember who wrote this, but there's a great post I read a while ago about how if you want to learn about a topic and you read a good book about it, okay, there's, uh, I don't know, 10,000 people who read the same book, right? And then you read two good books about the same topic. And now there's uh, maybe 500 people have read those two books. And you read three books and four books, and you try to find books that take the thing from different angles, right? So one book is about like evolutionary psychology, and the other is about alderian psychology, and the other is about, like you, you kind of create this little mosaic of things kind of around the same topic, but from all different angles, right? And I think you increase your resolution of you know, the knowledge of that topic to a level that very, very few people will have the same overlapping number of sources, right? And if you've read 250 biographies of founders and entrepreneurs and, and even overachievers like Arnold Schwarzenegger and others, I think that's very, very unique first, but your overlap is reading all of those while podcasting about those, right? So those two combine together because you don't read the same when you're going to make a podcast about it as when you're just r- randomly reading about it, right? It's more active no, I, reading, I do. probably. No, I Well, do. for you, maybe, but that's part <laughs> yeah. of your superpower. Most other people probably don't, right? The skill of podcasting, too, is something like, even if you forget about the books, just speaking into a microphone for that long, getting feedback from reader listeners, and like all that stuff is probably like probably count people on one hand around the world right exactly my point is it's like again this
1: is not my idea i'm working on my best idea the reason i brought up the fact that you know like i have basically a head start is i that's the way i think about warren buffett's like moat moat to me is just like why are you hard to compete with so if you're again i'm just taking their ideas it's like find your obsession see if you can build a moat and then just don't quit these are simple ideas like you said i think you said like simple ideas but hard to do yeah and so that's the way I think about it. And the reading of these biographies has informed me. That's literally what gave me these ideas. And so if I'm not applying them
0: to my own work, then I'm wasting my time. Can you describe your how you use Readwise? I think this is a great yes. deliberate practice thing, right? Because two people can read the same book or the same thing or listen to the same podcast. And one of them is going to get a lot more out of it than the other, right? Over time, especially. So I feel like your use of Readwise is so great. And I, I want to copy that at some point.
1: Okay, so I don't have like a note-taking app, right? Everything is in the default note-taking app on Apple, right? But what I do read, I think of Readwise the app as like my second brain. Okay? So my process is very simple. Like I try to not think about anything. I sit down and read a book. If something's interesting to me, I highlight it, or excuse me, I underline it, and then whatever whatever thought is spawned from that sentence, I write it down on a post-it note. So if you saw me making like The podcast it looks like i'm doing like arts and craft class i'm sitting here with post-it notes scissors rulers and pens right and so what i'll do is i'll go through the book one time that's the process then i will the night before i record i'll reread all of my notes and highlights right in the book and i I, sometimes i have to work off kindle i prefer to work off physical books right so that's now the second time that i've read the same highlights then i record the podcast that is the third time i have read the highlights and this is why i don't outsource anything And I do everything myself because I'm trying to make a handcrafted product at scale, right? And I think that resonates with people. So then I've now recorded the podcast. So now I go back through and I edit the podcast myself, which everybody tells me not to do, right? So now that is the fourth time I have heard and uh, absorbed the highlights. Then the podcast is done. It's published. I sit down with the ReadWise app. I talked to this about our mutual friend Frederick from Necker Value, because he's like, dude, how the hell do you get all like, you have so many, like, I have over 20,000 highlights in, in Readwise. And he's like, how do you get them on there? I go, the hard way. <laughs> he's like, what do you mean? I go, I take pictures of them using the Readwise app. It'll automatically recognize the, the text, but you have to fix some things. And then you have to add whatever note you wrote on the sticky note, right? And so that usually per book, that's several hours, but I'll listen to like a podcast in the back. Like it's actually really, I mean, it's kind of tedious, but again, I think like exposing yourself to the things that are tedious, like I don't try to avoid work. Right. And I think there's, it's just makes everything I like, it's just this constant repetition. So by the time I'm done, I've reread or listened to the, the highlights five times. And that is how I'm able to go, you know, reference on a podcast that I'll make this week, something that I learned two years ago. Like, I don't think of it, like, it's episodic in the sense that, you know, they're they're numbered and I'm releasing, you know, new episodes every week or whatever, but I really think about Founders as one gigantic conversation in the history of entrepreneurship. And that's Mm. why, go look at the notes. I'll include, anytime I mention a past podcast, I'll link to the book and I'll tell you what Founders episode it is in the notes. Almost every single one, I reference five,
0: six, seven, ten other founders. That's such a huge part of the value I'm getting out of it because most of the time, I find the next episodes I'm going to listen to from the one I'm listening to right now, right? So you're saying like, blah, 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 Edwin landed did this. It reminds me of what this other person did, this other person. And it's like, oh, I'm making notes, right? These sound interesting. And it's, it's all connected. It's all like all Wikipedia pages with links that interconnect and you've... Fall down the rabbit hole, and now I've listened to like four episodes on David Ogilvy because I heard you talk about him in some <laughs> other part. Right? Yeah, he's and, one of my and, heroes. And uh, last time we spoke, you described your Readwise thing. They, like the next step after that is you can go and like randomly scroll through it, and it's like your own private Twitter feed. But instead of having like empty calories of what's on Twitter right now, mm-hmm. it's all like your favorite quotes from you know, all the books you've read. And that seems like such a great way to like, as I said, refresh your memory about all the stuff you learned, because it decays so quickly in our brains, right? It's hard to remember everything. But if you refresh it once in a while, like it sticks around. The Readwise
1: app, the iOS app, and I have to like Tristan is one of the co founders. He's been a subscriber to founders for a long time. And they just built a I could not make the podcast without Readwise. And I've told him this before. Like, that's why I talk about on the podcast, I don't do ads, I have no ads in any of my episodes. When I tell you read why, it's like, and people signed up and have uh, have told me, it's like, hey, I bought this and it's super helpful just because of what you said. I pay for it. Like, I don't, I wouldn't even sign up with their affiliate program to, like, to refer. It's just like, dude, I want you guys to keep the money. I'm happy to talk about it. I'm happy to pay for it. But in the iOS app, they have this thing called Highlights Feed. You press on it and it's exactly what you just said. It looks like Twitter, except it's just, instead of seeing the person, like, Liberty RPF and your the satellite, right? <laughs> you see... Like, I just opened up Creativity, Inc., and you see the picture of the book, and then it's just like, uh, quote, this is a Revolver. That's the biography of uh, Samuel Colt that I read. This is Against the Odds, James Dyson. This is The Hour of Fate, which is a partnership between J.P. Morgan and Teddy Roosevelt. This is the biography of Milton Hershey. This is, you just referenced Arnold Schwarzenegger. I just see something from Total Recall. Joseph Pulitzer. Look at that. I'm six six swipes in, and it's just like, oh— I have a steady drop of great ideas, and I'm going to tell you where, where I started taking this super serious, why I got the idea to take that super serious, more serious than I think anybody else would on the planet. The reason I spend like an hour or two rereading highlights every day, right is because I read a 600 page biography of Michael Jordan. I actually read two um, I read two biographies of of, of his his is a lot shorter. You can you know read it comfortably in a weekend. the other one not short at all. You know, it took me a very, very long time. It's episode 212. And what I was shocked, and I was a huge Michael Jordan fan when I was a kid. Like, I was obsessed with him, right? Basketball still my favorite sport. And I was shocked to learn how much he talked about practice. He's like, I'd rather miss a game than miss, miss practice. He goes, I'm a practice player. I believe in it. And, the, and I think he has a lot of insights into his craft that I see in History's Greatest Entrepreneurs. They are obsessed with professional research, using a term by Bill Gurley. It's like, what work do you do that enhances your work when you're not working? It's a way to think about that, right? And so he yeah. talks about practice the whole, whole time. And then he gets to the dream team in 1992, right? And it, this is, blew my mind. So it's like, first of all, how difficult is it to get to the NBA? You're talking about what, like 400 players out of millions? It's like, I don't know the exact number, but it's small, right? So then you have that, right? Then you have the all-stars, which is like even a smaller subset of a small subset. Then you have people that are getting invited to an Olympic team, 12 players Out of the entire world that plays basketball, that wants to play basketball for the American team, you have 12. So he's like, listen, I was burnt out. I think he just won the championship. He'd been going nonstop. He's like, I had to be here because I wanted to see, like, the very top, right? I wanted to see their practice habits. And so he said something in that book that gives me chills. I repeat it over and over again on almost every podcast since then. And he said he was shocked to see how lazy they were with practice. Right? Maybe this is the best people in the world, right? To your point about a power law. It's like, yeah, you have the 12 best basketball players in the world. Maybe not because Christian Ladner on the team, but whatever. <laughs> so 11, 11 best basketball players in the world, right? But the difference between... But Jordan won, I think, more championships, not including Bird and, and Magic, but whatever. It's such a, like, even at the very best... The difference between one and two is still vast, right? And so he said, he goes, he was like disgusted by their practice habits. And he said this word that changed my approach to my work. He says, they're deceiving themselves about what the game requires to get to my level. Like he's beaten Charles Barkley's ass at the finals. He's beaten all these other dudes in the finals. He's like, you're deceiving yourself about what this game requires. That is why I don't think about anything else. I don't work on anything else. I don't take days off. Is because I'm not deceiving myself about what, if I want to make the best podcast in the world about the history of entrepreneurship, right? Not the biggest podcast in the world. I don't, I don't want to be interested in that. Yep. I want to make the best about the history of entrepreneurship. And I think about a podcast, not as a show. I think about it as a tool. It's a tool for your career, right? And so I realized like my practice habits are not good enough. And so that's when I immediately start. I always, you know, hmm. casually reread highlights, but now it's like, no, I got to go to practice. Just like he he knows on Tuesday at 11 a.m., he's got to show up and he's got to practice for two hours. Same thing. I got to show up and I got to practice. And my practice is reviewing past things I learned. So it sticks. So then
0: when I'm sitting down in front of you with no script, it just comes to mind. Uh, so many things I want to say at the same time. It's funny. I wrote this today. I wrote something like, I don't want the most readers. I want the best readers. And I feel like, there's always choices you can make, right? And so maybe if I lost the like stupid dad jokes and the smileys everywhere and this and that, more people could read the newsletter or take it seriously, like, or not bounce the first time they open it and they're like, what is this crap? And they did bounce, right? But all that stuff is a filter to find the kind of people who are going to be, I don't know, I don't know how to describe it, but similar to me in some ways, right? Kind of like, less serious and more curious and ready to accept weird things or whatever right that's kind of a filter so i feel like that jordan quote it cuts both ways if you want to do it you shouldn't deceive yourself about what it takes to get there On the other hand, you should be honest with yourself that if you're not ready to do it, right, if you're not ready to do what it takes, then don't pretend that you're going to do it. So many people suffer unnecessarily because they do something half-assed and they kind of lie to themselves and then they're so like distressed when it doesn't work. But if they had been more honest with themselves from the beginning, it could be like, okay, I know I'm not gonna even try this, right? I'm just gonna do it as, as a hobby or I don't know. Being well calibrated is one of my things, right? So many people could have better lives if they were just more honest about all kinds of stuff. One thing I got a a suggestion, right? I have a product idea for you. You should make your Readwise archive available to members somehow. Like, download it as a bundle, host it somewhere on a website, and that would be so valuable to readers. I'd be scrolling through it all day, like, as my own Twitter feed. And you, you would sell a lot of Readwise subscriptions, too, for them. So if you want to support them, that would help. Well, I'm pretty sure they have this thing where it's, like, broadcast.
1: I have to ask Tristan about this. Where like they'll send you an email from somebody else's Readwise every day for like with like ten highlights or something like that. So that might be. I uh, will have to talk to them about that. I know that they, they, the, the pace and it's interesting. Like I never thought about. There's literally they consider themselves a reading technology company. And I was like, oh, I would never came up with that term. Hmm. But if you see like their their iteration, how they're constantly improving their product, like that's really a like a a north star to how they're thinking about it. I want to expound on what you just said because you just said something that was fantastic. You used the word half-assed. Okay. So that's something like growing up. That's my dad would, that may be the thing he repeated to me and my brother the, the most, right? My dad's like a blue collar guy, uh, never graduated, didn't even graduate high school, but his work ethic is incredible, right? Extremely. And he's still, he's still a blue collar guy. Like he does physical crazy labor because that's what he wants to do. And he's kind of like a roughneck kind of wild dude. Right. But I think like, that's one of the best lessons you could teach your kids is like, whatever you do, like do it with your everything like don't he, he would like get on us so much if he saw he's like you're half-assing it right he's got all this like this kind of like southern like these like maxims that are just funny but that's one of them so i realized like oh i'm gonna apply his blue collar work ethic to a highly leveraged white collar occupation which is podcasts right hmm. and i was like i don't know and again just because it's an obsession like i don't know how many people are working just on a podcast for like 60 or 70 hours a week so we got to talk about Ed Dorp. We can't get off this before we go to Ed Thorpe because how do you like, how can you work a lot, but also have a complete balance of your life? I think Ed Dorp gives you that blueprint, but I just saw this fantastic video that Matthew McConaughey was talking about the advice he got from his dad when he was a kid. Right. And Matthew McConaughey is like this gifted storyteller. I had no idea. And so his dad wanted him to go to law school. And so he's like, he, he calls his dad and he tells the story in like 60 seconds. He's like, Hey dad, what's up? He goes, I got to talk to you about something serious. And his dad's like, what's up? He goes, I don't want to go to law school. I want to go to film school or art school or acting school. I forgot the term, but he basically want to be an actor. And so he go. he was bracing himself for his dad to like, you know, yell at him or whatever, complete silence for like five, 10 seconds. He goes, are you sure that's what you want to do? And then Matthew McConaughey says, he's like, I didn't hesitate at all. He goes, yes, sir. That's what I want to do. He goes, well, don't half-ass it. And he remembered that advice 30 years later. That conversation 25 years later, 20 years later, whenever it was, a very long time later, is like some of the best advice he gave. It doesn't matter what you do. That advice is applicable, man. Like, you're going to spend half your life working. Even if you work 40 hours a week, right? Maybe, you know, you sleep for eight. You got 16 left. You work, you do whatever you want, eight hours a day. You work the other eight. Maybe take weekends off. Whatever, so it's a little less than half of the time you're actually awake. Why would you not try to be as best as you can? It doesn't have to be your entire life, Right. But why would you not put everything into it, invest in whatever knowledge is going to make you better, skill set is going to make you better. You're giving a third to half of your life energy over to something and most people hate it. And so I realized by reading these books, there's two things if you make a mistake on. If you hate your job and you hate your spouse, it is impossible, Uh. impossible to have a good life. So if you fuck up those two gigantic decisions, and I have a family full of people that did that right on both sides of my family tree. And that's why I was like, I'm not doing that. I would rather be single and I'm happily married. I listened to that Mark Leonard podcast where he said, he's like, my wife is the nicest person I ever met, right? Same thing. Like
0: that's exactly how I feel. There's also a big Cal Newport thing, right? When you say, I wanna take the the work ethic of like a more blue color thing to a white color thing. I feel like everybody's kind of a knowledge worker today. Well, not everybody, but the people I, I, I know, right? And nobody knows how to be a good knowledge worker when you start reading Cal Newport stuff about deep work and all that, it's like everybody's just like bouncing around from meeting to meeting, like going through their email inbox all day. And it's all busy work makes them feel like they're accomplishing something, but not much value is produced. So I feel like one way to get that editor balance is not by sheer quantity of hours alone, but by, like, if you're doing something you really love, you're really passionate about, or you love because you're good at it, right? Which is kind of a Cal Newport's point, which is it's not so much about what you do. You can do all kinds of things, but it's going to be fun to you once you've developed a craftsman mindset of becoming better and better and better. And then once you become one of the best at your field, then it becomes fun, right? There are so thousands of kinds of jobs in the world, right? It's not only the, f- the same five jobs that are fun, right? These five types of jobs have fun and n- nobody else has fun all. Almost anything could be great, depending on how you do it and if you select it well. So I feel like the way to get this balance is that like, when I'm working, I'm not trying to like look at the time and think about what I'm going to punch out and what I'm going to do when it's over and do a bunch of busy work because it's easier to do than writing, right? Uh, oh, I'm going to have a meeting and then I'm going to shuffle around some email. No, like, all I'm doing is reading and writing all the time, right? So in the same number of hours as someone else, I can probably produce more I'm lucky because I don't also have like office politics and all that stuff, but it's also a choice, right? Like I became independent in control of my time through a design that took me 11 years to achieve. For 11 years, I saved like between 50 and 70% of my income to build up the capital to become a full-time investor. So that was a long-term plan that I I decided on. So it's easy for someone else to look at, but but you're lucky, right? You don't have a boss. Well, luck has (laughs) something to do with it, but it's not, not only luck. So anyway, so it makes me think that A bunch of people working in these fields could achieve much better work-life balance if they only cut a lot of the BS and all of the unproductive hours that they're spending, right? That is the key
1: where the reason, like I keep talking
0: about, I consider Ed
1: Thorpe my personal blueprint, right? And I recommend everybody read his autobiography, which is a a man for all markets. It's just fantastic. One, he's just a genius. So he's a hell of a lot smarter than I am and I ever will be. No problem saying that. Like it's obvious, right? So a lot of your audience I know is investors, I saw your your post where you surveyed your audience, It's like fifty percent like yeah. in working in finance or whatever the case was. So, you know, they are obviously know that he credited with like the first quantitative hedge fund. But what I realized is like why Ed Thorpe, in my opinion, is out of every single person I've studied so far, has got closest to mastering life. Because he identified a handful of things that he was important. And again, what makes a happy, contented person today is the same thing that made it two thousand years ago. Like human history doesn't repeat human nature does. And so he's like I want to have, first of all, he it's like, I want to be wealthy, but I don't, once I w- have more money than I can ever spend, I don't want to chase, give up more time for an additional dollar that doesn't make a difference to me, right? right? I want to have a life full of adventure. I want to be a good husband. I want to be a good father. I want to take care of my health. And in, in addition to adventures is have fun. So when I read his book, I'm like, oh, he just gave us the blueprint. So this is how I applied it. So first thing first, health, right? Which I know you, you and you have been talking about yep. taking a renewed interest in. So I think even though Ed Thor's a genius, he has a lot of like simple systems that anybody can copy. I don't have his capacity for thought, his raw processing power, but the way he breaks it down, like I can just copy that. So he says, hey, I view and his, his entire life he's done this. If you go look at him, he, you know, I've, I just watched a video with him a few months ago. He's like 85, 86. He looks like he's 65. Right. And so he's like, I view every hour spent on exercise as one less day I'll spend in the hospital at the end of my life. So he hmm. picked up the habit of exercise when he was in college and never gave it up, right? So he's like, you make it a priority, you put it on your calendar just like anything else. So then two, work, right? He's like, I want to be extremely, I want to do something unique, fun, something that uh, like I can use all like my intellectual power for and it's extremely profitable. So that's when he starts Princeton-Newport. Then once that blows up, it winds up getting raided by the feds, but it's, he didn't do anything wrong. He decides, he's like, do I want to build another fund? I just did this fund for like 19 years. Do I want to build another fund and have, you know, 100, 200 people working for me? He's like, no, I don't. And I'm already really wealthy. So he starts another, it's like more automated. I think it was called Ridgeline. I think at the time, Princeton Newport had like, you know, $200 million in under assets. This is in the 80s. It had like, you know, 100 people, 200 people, whatever the number was. I don't remember off the top of my head. Ridgeline had like 400 million. And it was him, five people, and a bunch of computers. And then he'd keep getting opportunities to make even more money. But he's like, I already live in an amazing house in Newport Beach. I already, he made, he winds up meeting Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett's 38 years old. He winds up investing in Berkshire at $900 a share. Think about that crazy. He, when he wrote the book, he still had the stock, right? $900 a share. That's when he bought it in, at Berkshire. So he winds up being the first LP in Citadel. The first LP in Citadel because he gave Citadel all the data. that he He's like, listen, I'm not going to run a big hedge fund. Here's my data. He gives it to those guys. And he's like, but I want to be in, your first investor, right? He winds up building the world's first Wearable computer with Claude Shannon, the inventor of information theory.
0: And we know that Claude Shannon also knew how to like have fun and adventures and have a good life and balance. 100%. 100%. Yeah. And then he goes, then
1: he's like studies how to, he figures out a simple system for counting cards, which people still use to this day. He invented it in the 1960s, still in use to this day. He writes a book about it called Beat the Dealer. It sells millions of copies. So you look at his list of accomplishments. I'm not telling people, like, oh, I'm going to copy at Thorpe so I can be less ambitious. How many people have that list of accomplishments that have ever lived? A tiny percentage. But then what's weird. is like, he also took care of his health. He, he's like, I will not go. Like spending time, his wife winds up dying of cancer later on in life and he's writing the book after she passes away and he's like, I'm so grateful. I don't have regrets. Me and Vivian, if, I'm, if I remember her name correctly, he's like, we had a great relationship. I didn't pursue an extra dollar because that dollar or going to lunch with someone other an investor when I'm already rich, I could be spending that lunch with my wife who i love more than anybody else my kids know who i am we spend an entire an insane amount of time together their entire time he worked essentially nine to five he was freaking a professor at ucr Irvine. he didn't quit till he's like 12 years into his fund like he was just he's like one of the most inner scorecard people i've ever come across and like one of the people who by far i most admire so when i looked at that i'm like okay i'm not a quantitative hedge fund guy i'm not going
0: to build wearable computers but i identified i was like he, he has a system well, you don't need to be right. That's the thing. If you copy, if you want to copy the results, you don't need a two hundred million dollar hedge fund or whatever. All of what he had as a result can be done by almost anyone, right? Exercising, spending time with your family, finding a job where you kind of like set limits, all that stuff. A lot of people could like you go in a low cost area and you, you could live for almost nothing that kind of lifestyle right you can go further if you want but most of the things where you got this life satisfaction doesn't cost hundreds of millions of dollars correct
1: but i think what was nice for me to hear is that you could have both like it's very hard not to over optimize but that's what i meant it's just the balance so it's like well we got 24 hours in the day like i'm not sleep deprived like i sleep eight hours you know like i'm not sleeping four hours a day like i can't operate on that so i was like okay i have to take care of my health so i give an hour of that a day no matter what right I spend an insane amount of time with my wife and my kids. If I'm not spending them with my wife and kids, like all in the last week, this is exactly what I've done. I spent seven hours, you know, on some kind of physical activity, whatever you choose that you want to do. I wound up uh, having lunch with one of my oldest friends. I had dinner with one of another one of my oldest friends. That was, you know, probably four hours, uh, two hours each, right? I spent an insane amount of time with my wife, spent an insane insane time with my kids. I spent an insane amount of time working on founders, right? And an insane amount of time having fun. And so that balance, if you, the reason I, that thought spurned is because what you just said. It's like people say they don't have time, but then you, you actually audit. It's just like they spending a bunch of time like staring at a screen that they're not really interested in or you know, engaged in a meeting that didn't have to be a meeting or whatever it is that's in your life that doesn't have to be there. And I just ruthlessly, ruthlessly prioritize and I cut everything.
0: Yeah, everybody has the same 24 hours, right? It's just centered around those pillars. It's
1: like health, family, friends, work, and adventure. That's it.
0: Yeah. On Friday, I posted the excerpt from a book I was reading on Twitter. And someone said, I I don't remember the name, but someone said like, oh, Liberty, you're you're reading a book on a Friday night. Like, aren't you like afraid you're not like having fun and taking time to like do stuff and like you're always reading and working and isn't, isn't that terrible, right? And my reply was, well. I was just driving my kid to his parkour class, and so while I was waiting for him, I was reading that book. And then I spent the rest of the evening with my kids, and then they went to bed, and I spent the rest of that evening with my wife. And the day before, I had five friends over for the weekly D&D game that we have where we like laugh and drink (laughs) scotch. And so a lot of stuff you're not going to see on Twitter, right? You get a distorted view of my life, but I'm trying to have this balance. And I feel like hopefully others have more balance than sometimes they seem to do, but yeah, it is extremely variable. Like, as you say, some people say they don't have time to exercise, to do anything. But if you were to look at a very granular calendar of how they spend their time, a ton of it is spent on random crap on Netflix and reality TV shows. And a lot of filler can be cut. Like, you shouldn't be jealous of anyone's free time because everybody has those same 24 hours. It's, it's the choices that create the time. It's not like someone has magically more hours than someone else. And sometimes the best use of your time is just thinking. So me and you have similar
1: people in our audience, you know, these entrepreneurial investor types, even if they're not at the office, like you go for a walk in the woods all the time. I'm sure sometimes you're thinking about like your own life, you're thinking about your kids, you're thinking about your wife, thinking about friends, but I'm sure part of that is thinking about work, thinking about this investment you want to make, thinking about this idea. People say, oh, it's just because it's not on a calendar or it's maybe not taking place sitting at your desk or whatever the case is. That I mentioned earlier, like David Ogilvie is one of my personal heroes, right? Like he's one of the best writers I've ever come across. And, you know, he worked a ton, but he's like, I believe in working hard, but I believe in sabbaticals. He's like, I need time to recharge. And so he, he believed in the fact that he's like, I read and read and write basically 24-7. That's my job. And then I'll purposely carve out parts of my schedule where I do nothing. I go for a walk. I'm on a farm. I ride a bike. And he goes, that is when I get the download. When I'm engaged in doing nothing, I take walks on the beach because I, like, I live two, three miles from the beach, right? When I'm engaged in technically nothing, what well, it looks like from the outside, nothing, I'm getting these downloads from my subconscious. That is technically work. You use the word knowledge worker, right? You need time to get the computation, like the result of the computation that your brain makes subconsciously that you don't have control over it. And if you're scheduled every single minute, I constantly get people like, hey, I'd love to talk to you. They try to put something on my calendar. They're like, what's your calendar look like? Or send a calendar but I go, I don't have a calendar. I don't have a calendar text me they're like hey can we meet three weeks from now no text me the day before we set this up a couple days ago we had an idea it's like hey man you're working on a newsletter and other stuff i'm working on a podcast i know we want to talk and then you know it's not like we had this on the calendar weeks in advance just like i can do next tuesday i can do or whatever day i don't know what day it is actually but um and it's just very simple i use the tony hawk example right i'm sitting there watching that documentary with my wife That is something we enjoyed doing, watching documentaries, especially because it's like they're entertaining, which you also get to learn. And from that activity, still spending quality time with her, still spending entertainment, I'm like, oh,
0: I got ideas for my podcast. Oh, the way he thinks about skating. I think about podcasts. It's the same thing. Yeah. You almost said the word I'm using is maybe last year I realized. and, And while we spoke, we talked about how wonderful podcasts are. At some point, I realized I had too much input time during the day. I always had something in my ears, I was always reading something, and so I was looking for what I call processing time, right? So I've tried to, sometimes when I walk in the woods, like I don't listen to anything, it's just processing time. Like my brain's going to go in whatever direction it wants to, my subconscious has more space to work, whatever happens, I feel like I'm getting a ton of value out of that processing time, even if it's harder to define, right? If I heard a podcast and I write something about it in a newsletter, that's super obvious like the value I got out of it or if I hear an idea that I can apply or that's the visible part but I feel like there's a huge part under the iceberg that people never think about and it's that processing time that a lot of people they're robbing themselves of it right they're always feeling every second right they're waiting in line somewhere they're scrolling on Facebook or Twitter or what I get it like I'm a Twitter addict but the way I use Twitter now is almost like 75% the DMS now it's kind of like um, a phone book for me for all the people I know, the relationship I've built, and so we can exchange ideas and have conversations. And once in a while, I'll go on the timeline and see what's happening, and I get some news there. And I get value because I've heavily, heavily curated who I follow, right? Some people I see, they follow like 6,000 people, and it's like, <laughs> how can you have any signal in all that noise, right? But uh, over time, I've tried to curate a lot because this upfront decision about who you follow is a decision about what you're going to think about later. So I'm curating my future thoughts in a way. So that's something that most people should spend more time on too, right? When I read a book, especially now that I, I have less time to read with the kids and everything, like I'll put up a ton of upfront time about filtering the book and making sure it's recommended by someone who stays I trust and everything so that when I end up reading it, it's almost always something I, I love or I get out of. So, so the podcast and one way to do it it's the same with people. Like in the past couple of years, before the pandemic, I used to not really do calls with people. I always thought of myself more as a text guy, right? So I'll just write you an email or we'll chat and that's good enough for me, right? I'm, I'm more of an introvert and like it's kind of stressful to meet new people all the time. And because I, I hang out with finance people and there's kind of a, a cohort of extroverts in there that are like on the phone all, all day, right? Tons of people. And I always felt like that, that's alien to me. Like I can't work like that. But what I discovered in the past couple of years is that Thanks to Twitter and now the newsletter, this is kind of a filter for the interest graph. So it's about finding people who match you in some way on a basis of interest, right? It's not the social graph, which is people you went to school with or your family, but it's, it's really based on interest. This is such a good filter that if you've been following someone on Twitter for a year and then you have a call, I don't think I've had a bad call yet. It's such a good filter that you end up like, same with the newsletter, right? If someone has been reading my stuff and sending me emails and, and like they have good feedback, they, they suggest ideas and I am doing a call with them, like the hit rate is it's so high with this. So now I'm trying to take more advantage of it. Uh, I don't remember how I got on this topic, but most people are afraid to put themselves out there because they don't think they have something to contribute. But part of contributing is you get much more than you contribute if you do it over time. If you give some value to whatever, as a podcast, on Twitter, as a a newsletter, and you only get 5% back from one person, right? Because most people won't send you anything, won't reply, won't comment. Well, at first it feels like you're giving a ton and you're not getting anything back. But as you build your audience, right? Two years later, 5% of people sending you something back is like, Hundred X more than what you're contributing, right? It's so positive some. You're getting so much more than you're contributing. So that would be my, my kind of uh, my call to people to put themselves out there and not just lurk and, and not just like hide in a corner and be afraid that people are gonna judge them. Because others don't really care. If you give them value, if you you show them interesting stuff, then they, then they'll reach out. Then then you'll meet new friends and all that stuff. So it's super valuable. I want to go back to the processing
1: that you just mentioned, but that's why before I go there, that's why I hope like you keep doing the podcast because podcast puts that phenomenon that you just described where you feel like, you know, somebody on steroids, the easiest for two strangers, technically strangers to become friends. There's not an easier relationship than two podcasters. When I talk to somebody that has a podcast that I've listened to and that they listen to mine, it's, Hmm. it's like, we know, it's like, we do know each other. And it, there's yeah. like almost like you get on the phone for the first time and you just pick up, like you had like a, you had like this ongoing conversation. It's crazy. But I want to go back to this point that you mentioned and then we were both talking about. It's like the importance of setting aside time for processing and getting a download of your own thoughts, right? Again, I said it, not my idea. David Ogilvie said that, but I also stole something from Jim Simons, the guy that did Renaissance yeah. Technology. So I read his book, what is it, like The Man Who Solved the Market or something like that? Yep. Yeah. And I read in that book, and I read that book probably, I don't know, two or three years ago, a long time ago. And I've done it ever since. And he had the habit of like when he had a problem, he would lay down and close his eyes. And so people might walk into his office or see him and they're like, oh, is he sleeping? No, he's thinking. What I'll do, and I try to do this, and I I, I did it yesterday. I, I wish I could do it every day, but I probably should do it every day. I do it frequently. I put on, it's usually in the afternoon, so sometimes this could fall into a nap, so you got to be careful. <laughs> I put in earplugs, a sleep mask, and I set a timer. Usually for forty-five minutes for an hour, and I just lay there, no input. I can't see anything, can't hear anything, and I just run through because I'm reading all the time. I'm, you know, like it just like gives my brain time to
0: process. It's almost like a flotation tank, right? Isolation tank. Yes. Yeah, like you're turning all of your attention inward. Yes. Sometimes you'll fall asleep, but uh,
1: most times you don't, and you'll just have. I don't try to control it. You know, I, I'm not a meditator or anything like that, but I just go. I want to get a download of what the hell's in there when I'm not reading something, listening to something. I'm not even seeing anything. It's literally black. I see blackness. I was like, oh, well, if he thought that was a good idea, maybe I should try it. I started trying. I was like, this is a great idea. It's useful for me. And I'm not running, you know, I'm not printing $100 billion, whatever that guy's done. But what I love about these ideas is they, they scale up and down. Just because you're not running the Apple or running an Amazon or running, you know, any other business, like you, those ideas can still be a one-person business right? And they're still useful to me. And it can be useful to a five-person business and a hundred person business and a hundred thousand person business.
0: I think it's a great segue into Rick Rubin because he seems to have some of the same methods, right? When I was listening to your podcast about him, and I guess I should put some context. Rick Rubin is a music producer. He's basically uh, probably one of the best known names. Uh, And he's kind of like an artist's artist, right? He's not always the most commercially successful. He's not like one of these producers, like everybody knows their beats on the radio, but artists like seek him out to do their best work in some ways, right? And I got to know him. I started out uh, in, in metal music and I was into the early trash bands and everybody was into Metallica and kind of like the, the more bit heavier stuff at the time was uh, Slayer. And he did Ranging Blood, which was the kind of like yeah super intense album, super like, like proto death metal, right? Kind of created a new genre. And that album sounded so good and was so, so everything about it was more it than any other albums by even the same band, right? So I read Rick Rubin's name on the the cover and it was on the back cover. And I was like, oh, who's that guy? He must be such a metal guy, right? And then later I learned he's a hip hop guy. And (laughs) so basically, Rick Rubin had the same approach at the time that I now have about music, right? Because I used to be more about like this genre. And now it's like, well, there's good music and there's bad music subjectively. That's all that matters. doesn't matter what kind, right? And he seems to think the same thing. Anyway, to go back to the, the method, when you were describing how Rick Rubin works in the studio, like people see him and he's like laying down on the couch, his eyes yes. are closed. He looks like he's not doing anything, right? But that's exactly what he's doing. He's processing. He's feeling stuff. He's trying to be in the moment. He's not fiddling with knobs and trying to think about like, oh, this this preamp would be better. He's not. He says he's not even a technical guy, right? Some At people all. are engineers first. Like Steve Albini is an engineer, but Rick Rubin he's like. He's a guy who feels the music more than others, right? He's tuned himself to that and he can help the band say what they want to say better than they would otherwise. Or I don't know how he does it exactly, but it sounds a lot like he's a super Zen guy. I love the documentary he did with Paul McCartney where they're basically sitting in front of a control room board, music board for like, I don't know, six hours and they just put in tapes and talk about music for hours and hours. And the way you can see how his mind works around music And he's like, he's going to listen to a song and he's going to lower the volume on everything except like the voice and the acoustic guitar. He's like, that's the core of the song. That's the skeleton of it. And it's great as is, right? But then they added this because he's going to deconstruct everything, but not from a technical point of view, right? He's not like, oh, they start in 4-4 and then they switch in 3-4 and then there's the the syncopated beat here. He's like, this gives me this feeling and that feeling. And I I don't know. I I love the way how he's kind of taken a very simple thing, but pushed it as far as it could go. He is, and
1: that's why I love when he's like, I'm not a producer. Like his very first album said, not produced by Rick Rubin, reduced by Rick Rubin. Yeah. And the reason amazing. why like, I was so obsessed and I, like, I completely fell in love with him, even though I, I had heard of him before, I had watched a documentary about him like 20 years ago, and I can't believe it took me this long to, to read a biography of him. is because there's a lot of things like that I'm rather envious of in the sense that uh, it's episode 245, in case everybody wants to listen to that episode, by the way. He found what he loved to do when he was 18 years old, and he's turning 60 this year. And he's still doing it this is what i meant about the importance of heroes you know a lot of people quote charlie Munger and warren buffett it's just like well they've been working on even if berkshire you could say there's obviously precursors of berkshire like they've been working on their best idea forever right so like it's not just enough to like look up to these people it's just like why are we not copying them even more so and so the way rick rubin feels about producing music is the way i feel about podcasting i don't think reading is the the hobby The I, i've had a lot of different hobbies in my life i think the only one that was consistent is reading and so it's like i don't think 10 years from now i'm not going to be wanting to read books anymore i don't think 20 years from now i'm not going to read any want to read any books anymore so what i really hope is like i found my passion like rick rubin found his i found it when i was older than he was and then his approach too it's just like he has a very high bar from quality he's like most of you know music is i don't want to work with them right just like i've read a ton of books for the podcast that i read almost the entire book sometimes i gave up right away or halfway through it's just like if i got to end a book i was like that's not good enough there's a ton that no one i never make a podcast about you know and i just love i'm stealing his idea too what you just hit on it's like well a great voice playing an acoustic guitar sounded good 50 years ago it'll sound good 50 years from now a beautiful voice and a, a grand piano sounded good 50 years ago it'll sound good 50 years from now so when you see him work with the artists he always goes back to fundamentals. He'll take people like Neil Diamond or Johnny Cash, where they had early success, then they kind of fell off. And he says, he's like, you overcomplicated it. He's like, I'm gonna take what made you great and I'm gonna take everything that's not great. Like, you don't need all the extra stuff. He's like, I'm gonna put you in a room with your guitar and your voice and we're gonna make some of the best music ever made. And so I've always listened, I've been obsessed with hip hop, right? That's my love. And as I get older, what I listen to expands. But when I was doing research, for that podcast, I was listening to a ton of his stuff. Like, I fell in love with his Johnny Cash album. I fell in love with his Red Hot Chili Peppers album. I was listening to uh, Slayer, the Reign of, is it Reign of Terror Rain, or Reign of Blood? ringing Blood, Blood. In Blood. Ra- yeah, yeah, all of this. I went back and listened to Rick Rubin's LL Cool J album that he produced when LL Cool J was like 17 years old. It hmm. still sounds good.
0: It's timeless, right? He makes it for how much he loves it, not how it's gonna sound on the radio right now or compared to other stuff.
1: What he picked up on is the same thing I think a lot of great entrepreneurs and investors do. It's just like, I don't want all the fancy shit. I want to master the fundamentals. When you try to like, if you master the fundamentals and you want to layer stuff on top of that, that's fine. But a lot of people try to get fancy before they master the fundamentals. And you'll see when they have trouble in their career, they're like, okay, this is too difficult. Let's take it back to the basics. Let's just master the basics. I see that theme over and over and over again in these books.
0: Or what you see is also people who, they don't have those fundamentals. And so they try to mask the lack of it with, they, they put 50 layers of all kinds of crap on top of it to distract you from the fact that the song is not that good to begin with. What's on the cutting room floor? If you If you only care about quality, to make it look easy right to make it look like oh the whole album just clicked right every song is good they were they were on fire right they, they must have been on the in a good moment right no it's like okay they had them write like 50 songs and then he took like the 10 best one and said like what five can we lose and then we keep only these five it's like spielberg or whatever like what's on the cutting room floor when they're editing a movie right you only see like two hours of it, but maybe they film like, I don't know, 400 hours of, of it yes. from different angles. And then they, they they rebuild it, right? It's like with writing, you write something and then, oh, it's okay. Then you edit it, you rewrite it, you cut stuff off. You, what you read in my newsletter is only a tip of the iceberg because there's tons of stuff I read I never write about. There's tons of stuff I write, I end up cutting in the morning, right? I, I just delete it all because it's not good enough. There's tons of stuff that's in my note files that I, I just can't get to because stuff piles up faster than I can write it. So I feel like, most of the people who are trying to go for quality, and I, I, I'm still just trying, and I hope someday I'll, I'll get it, but they have to be ruthless about what they cut and what's good enough. You can't just write 10 songs and put them on the album because that's a 10 you've got, right? You got to have this bar that's super high. And like, if you have one good song, well, write 10 more. And maybe you have one, another good one. And now you have two, write 10 more and then rinse and repeat until you meet the quality bar, not the quantity bar, right? The way Rick Rubin would describe it is like
1: less is more. But to get less, you have to do more. And so that's the approach I take is like, I might spend this week, you know, 50, 60 hours rereading Titan. I don't know what the podcast will be when it's done. Maybe it's only 90 minutes, but there's a ton. Like that's how, because the thing I'm most scared of is like, it's an investment. You're letting somebody into your ear, into your brain. And I'm terrified of wasting people's time. And so what I try to do is just like, well, I'll spend 20 hours reading a book, you know. And maybe the podcast is only 60 minutes, but I know it's a good 60 minutes because I went through 20 hours to get there. So there's an idea that I stole from this young independent rapper named Russ that I mentioned over and over again on the podcast. And it's something I've seen over and over again in these stories. And it's that the public praises people for what they practice in private. So everybody saw Apocalypse Now when Francis Ford Coppola dropped it, you know, released the movie in the 70s. And it's still you know two and a half hours long, but it was like 300 hours of video. It was months and months of work. They're praising him for what they see but they didn't, so what they think is like, I love your movie, now realizing that they're actually praising him for all the work he did behind the scenes that they'll never see. Every single occupation is like that, whether it's a newsletter, whether it's building Apple, whether it's building a podcast, whether it's running an investment fund, they only see, they'll see the results, they'll see what they see in public, but they didn't see all the stuff that went in private. And that's why I'm not big on trying to find shortcuts or hacks or anything. I like Jerry Seinfeld's method of operation. He says, if you're trying to be efficient, you're doing it wrong. The reason that Seinfeld, what he, and this is his words, the reason that Seinfeld was as successful as it was because I managed everything. I managed every script, every take, every actor, everything. I didn't know until I read this interview that him and Larry David wrote the entire thing. I thought that, you know, every show had a writer's room. He's like, we didn't do that. It was me and Larry.
0: Yeah. Efficiency is great when you know what you're doing, right? If it's a process, a technology, a business thing, efficiency is not the thing for a creative process. It's the inefficiency that gives you this processing time, right? Or this wandering time where you're going in all kinds of directions and you pick up the pieces that later you put together to create the thing. But if you're like, I don't want to waste any time. I don't want to go out of my way. I don't want to, I only want to work all the time. Like, Well, on paper, it sounds more efficient, but you're going to skip all of the (laughs) Actual creative part of the process and the end result probably won't be nearly as interesting as it would be if you allowed yourself like all of this, not indefinable, but like fuzzier thing, right? It it doesn't fit on a spreadsheet. Today, I spent three hours processing like, I don't know. It feels underrated. I I read a book called The Tao of Capital written by Mark Spitznagel, which is he
1: runs the Universal Fund right? And his entire book is about the circuitous route, Right. And he uses the example of, like, not only his own work, that what he does, but he also uses the example of, like, Henry Ford and Robinson Crusoe. And I think you just nailed it. Like, you would be efficient once you have it figured out, right? But when Henry Ford, there was no such thing as mass producing an automobile. They had to invent that. So when you read, and I've read, you know, probably five books about him, too, and you read all of the ups and downs and trials and tribulations, the fact that his first two uh, auto companies failed, the fact that he had issues with investors, the fact that he didn't—he had this idea. He's like, I just want to build— Uh, large volume cheap car for everybody that can drive right and yet all you saw all the the practice and the stuff that he had to go through in private right decade decade and a half i uh, I can't remember the exact time frame at the moment until he got to the process and he figured it out and then the model t comes out and it becomes you know they sell 15 million cars whatever the number is and it was like oh my god ford's a genius and it's like they're praising what the end result but they didn't see the process and if he had skipped steps to your point it's like we have to make this efficient we don't know how to make it efficient you have to do the work first then i'm not saying sometimes people misinterpret what i say is like oh i want to waste time no, no no i'm saying that the reason i like to do things myself the reason i still do my editing the reason i do my practice is because that time invested is not wasted it yep. is utilized in the future And that makes my podcast better the longer I do it. And if I skip that step, it won't be as good. So I'm not at, from the outset, it looks like, oh, David's, you know, micromanaging or he's doing something he doesn't need to do. It's just like, no, I actually need to do that because that process influences the end product and that may influence an end product a year from now, two years from now, five years from now.
0: Another way to frame it, to go back to music or art is like all of the overnight successes that we hear about that were like 10 years in the making, right? oh, this band just blew up on their first album. And then you start reading more closely the bio and they've been playing in small clubs for 10 years and they recorded five demos and they had like six different members that churned before they found the right people. And, or they were like the people before they were in that band, they were in a bunch of other bands. And it's very, very rare. Like it, it happens, but it's very rare to have someone who comes out like fully formed and like super genius, right? Your life makes sense when you look back But at the time, it seems very random, like a bunch of stuff that's useful to me now, at the time I had no idea would ever be useful, right? Like 15 years ago, I started a document where I keep quotes of interesting stuff. And now every time I publish a newsletter, I put one of those at the top, right? So it's all work I did in the past, like past me did that work, and now future me or present me is benefiting, right? for years and years, because as as you can tell, English is not my first language. So I started learning English for like computers and music. I was on music forums, I I, I learned to write there. Then I was on investing forums. I couldn't have never gone to the investing forums and I'm self-taught in everything financial. I've never studied finance, never studied tech, right? So I could never have done that without being interested in music and learning English, right? Because my parents don't, don't really speak English. And then all of this writing on forums kind of like evolved my own weird little writing style that's not based on anything I learned in school, because I didn't learn English in school. <laughs> I, I learned English from like, the Simpsons, and Frasier, and Third Rock from the Sun, <laughs> and Deadwood Dialogue. And so my ear is very tuned to that kind of stuff. So that's why I just want to write very conversational, right? I had no idea it would ever be useful, right? Because if I had become a lawyer or something, what's the point about of any of that, right? Yeah. And then even when I became a full-time investor, Everybody I saw writing about investing or finance did it some way, right? But I didn't want to do it that way. I didn't want to make stock recommendations. That, that's stressful, right? If it doesn't work out, I feel bad for others who follow me. I didn't want to share my portfolio all the time because I know why I buy this stuff. I, I've built confidence over five years, 10 years. But the other person who just in a in month decides to follow you, I don't know. I, I have so little control over what others do. And I know in theory, like it's all like, caveat and it's their fault and it shouldn't be on me, but I would still feel bad, right? And so that's why it took me so long to figure out a way that I could write about the stuff that interests me, but only the part that interests me and not all of the other boring parts. And that's why I I don't have a paywall in my newsletter, because it feels very different to me to have supporters versus customers. Mm -hmm. And if I have supporters, they're just saying like, I kind of like what you do, I keep going. If I have customers it's much harder to experiment and goof off and do all kinds of strange things. And cause they're kind of like, I'm paying for a product and I'm expecting like this analysis of, so it took me a long time to figure out a model that fit with my own kind of like life design or wiring or all that stuff. And I feel like more people should take the time to do that rather than look around and like copy the model that everybody else is doing. I feel like more people would figure out something that makes them happy basically. Cause if we don't take advantage of this, long tail of niches and poker tables or whatever you want to call them on the internet if you don't take advantage of it it's like it doesn't exist right it's like the person that knows how to read but never reads well may may as well not know how to read so what you
1: just described is why it's so essential i think for people as just being a complete human to read biographies and autobiographies because you're describing the influence of who you were how you were raised how you learn language and what effect it had on your work so by understanding your journey that led up into this point it makes the idea it makes first of all it makes perfect sense why you approach your work the way it does but it also makes the ideas that are manifest in your work more likely to be remembered and taken because that's the point like what's the point if we're reading books listening to podcasts reading newsletters and we don't retain any of it like we're just wasting our time and we know no matter what 99 percent of the stuff that we're taking in right we're not going to retain so i
0: think that was a perfect demonstration of why you should match the person with the idea I guess everything is full circle, right? But what we were saying about how humans are designed to remember stories, right? And when you hear someone talk in your ears for hours and hours, well, evolutionarily, it would be a friend or a family member or someone close, right? I feel like if I'm going to write something, I want to write it to you and I want to write it the way I speak and I think. And I feel like you have a better chance of remembering it or understanding what I, I'm saying because I, I'm trying to upload my personality to you, right? I'm trying to be a person to you, and your brain is probably better at remembering it. So, if I read about some anecdote about my kids or about this company or that, in a way that I don't know, it feels more like I'm just speaking to you over beer. To me, it's like it's very different from like reading like Ben Graham's security analysis, which is like a great <laughs> book but pretty dry, right? So I, I don't know, like making it memorable. To some people, it feels like dumbing it down. But I think if you do it right, it's elevating it, right? Because it's more accessible to people. The idea is gonna come to them when they need it. That's what makes Buffett and Bezos and all these people who can compress ideas so well, so effective, right? If Buffett was speaking in bland jargon all the time, nobody would remember. But when Buffett says, like, be greedy when others are fearful, or is standing on tiptoes at a parade, or Bezos says yeah. day one, like all the two couple words, and there's a cluster of ideas in your head immediately, and then you can try to apply it to the situation in front of you, right? It's not the same with, like, some of the stuff I saw in university, I spent hours and hours and hours reading oh. books and being in lectures. It's all gone, right? Nothing's left of it. But some video of Buffett I saw with Charlie Rose, like, 15 years ago, I still remember. It's why Churchill said, it's slothful not to
1: compress your thoughts. He wasn't saying that to be a jerk or saying his time is super valuable.
0: He's saying it because you won't remember it otherwise. Yeah, it's the thing about like, I'm sorry, I didn't have time to write you a short letter, so I wrote a long one. Yeah. It's like, do the work necessary to, in
1: his case, like he said this right, obviously, in the middle of the worst war in history, but he's like, do the work before you present it to me and present it to me in a way that I can get it right away. We don't have an abundance of time to do the work together. And I think the best thinkers, the clearest thinkers, you mentioned some of them, I would add Steve Jobs to that list too, Charlie Munger, obviously, they are gifted communicators. That is a superpower. It makes them better entrepreneurs, better investors, and in case of Charlie Munger, better teachers.
0: And better leaders. The whole point of forming a company is trying to creating a system, kind of a machine that accomplishes what you want to do. Well, you could have the smartest person in the world, but if they're not able to kind of inject their DNA, the way they think, into other people so that these people are become kind of extensions of them. You may have some companies that work, but not the world beating companies like that change the world, right? That that become huge. Like Apple is so much an extension of Steve Jobs that it's its best product by far, because it's the product that created all of the other products. Without Apple, Steve Jobs could not have made all the stuff he did, right? And that sounds that sounds trivial in a way. But in in, in another way, it's like You needed so many pieces of the puzzle tied together to have the scale and even just the iPhone. All of the carriers had all of the leverage for every smartphone in the world. They put all of their crapware in it. There was stickers all over it. Yeah. Like yeah. He, he had to fight super hard just to get the original iPhone the way he did. And every carrier said no. And it, that's why he wasn't like, uh, AT&T. Well, it wasn't even at t It was some smaller carrier that AT&T bought. Yeah. It was the only one that said yes, right? He was ready to say no to all of the biggest carrier just to accomplish his vision. I, I don't know, it's the kind of stuff like we can't do it at that scale. But there's always days when it's like, oh, it would be so much easier to do it this way, or I could make more money in the short term doing it this way. but. If you keep your eye on the the real goal, the long-term goal, like in in 20 years, what would I wish I had done right now? What's going to get me on the best path for sustainable happiness and this this thing? I think it's very clarifying. I just want to say one thing
1: too, like I haven't yet to read a book about somebody who built a great company that was a short-term thinker. So I, I know that's prevalent in human nature. I think you have to fight it by all means i become friends with Sam Hinkey as a result of the podcast, and he's got the greatest maxim for this. He's like, you always maintain the longest view in the room. And he's got, because I've had the pleasure of talking to him, he's got deep historical context, like almost every all the great entrepreneurs and investors do. And I just think he nailed it. It's just like there is no, in all these biographies, there's no short-term thinking, because those people didn't last long enough to, to accomplish anything that people actually want to write books about.
0: Yeah, it's and we're seeing right now in, in the market, right, with the crash and everything, the first thing that changes with people when there's problems, and I'm sure it's the same at, at companies, is that everybody's time horizon shrinks and shrinks and shrinks until it's almost like uh, a millimeter close to your face. And so everybody's... It's much easier to think long-term when everybody everything's going well, right? Oh, I can see myself in 10 years. We're gonna do all these things. And then stuff starts blowing up around you and everybody's like, okay, we're gonna burn the furniture. We're gonna slash everything. You just want to survive to the next day, which, which sometimes is what you have to do. But I don't know, I, I feel like too often people give up these long-term visions right at the time when they're most valuable, right? Because when everybody's taking long-term... Well, it's a lot less differentiated. But when everybody's thinking short term, if you're the only one who's thinking longer term and the one who's like, I don't know, like counter positioning and everything, right? You're hiring people when everybody's firing so you can get the best talent from others. You're like thinking about what's going to happen in five years when everybody's cutting their plans. And so when you come out of whatever's happening now, you're the only one who's a couple of years ahead of the others or whatever, right? You can imagine all kinds of examples, but it feels like Everybody has such similar brain architectures that if you're feeling scared or you're feeling like you wanna think short-terms, everybody else is probably thinking the same way. So fighting these urges is, that's the thing you gotta train yourself to do when it's going well. It's harder to learn when you're gripped by emotion, right? Having the longest view in the room is a competitive advantage. So I'll give you a
1: perfect example from the book I'm reading right now, because it's fresh in mind. I just got to this section, I think two days ago, where at the very beginning of the oil industry, you know, this is like kerosene, this is not car oil. Rockefeller is making all these investments because he's like, at the time, there's the vast majority of people said Oral's, it's a fad. We're gonna dig. At the time, it all, is only coming from Western Pennsylvania. Let's take all the money out. Don't reinvest in the business. Just get the profit. And Rockefeller's like, no, I'm building for the long term. And he would do constant reinvestment. 90 percent of his competitors just wanted cash. Even so, not only at the very beginning that that people doubt, like you, you, you could have bought Standard Oil stock was publicly like available. Right. And everybody's like, no, this is like, this industry is not here to stay. And these young kids, because I think Rockefeller was like 24, 25, something like that at the time. Yeah, actually younger, like, oh, no, these older, more successful businessmen were like, these kids are insane. They literally thought Rockefeller was insane. And so not only did he have a long term view then, but as he starts buying out his competitors, he always wanted to give stock because he was low on cash and he, he was flabbergasted. He's like, I cannot believe that the vast majority of them let's say nine out of ten of those people I'm trying to buy out took cash and then the author has a great line in the book um, where he talks about the difference between whether you took stock or whether you took cash and it said American high society in the 20th century would be loaded with descendants of those refiners who opted for stock that is the difference between having a long-term view hmm. right and somebody saying no I want cash. And then the people that took the cash would get mad at Rockefeller because they saw the, the appreciation in the value of Standard Oil uh, stock and felt they were cheated. When he's like, I gave you the opportunity and you wanted the immediate
0: return. It's worse than that. Even those that took the stock, most of them would probably have sold it along the way as soon as they hit a bump in the road or something. There are so many companies like Amazon or whatever, you look at the long-term chart and it's like, oh, well, it's up you 40,000%. Know, like everybody who bought it, Twenty years ago must be rich, right? But no, they all sold it along the way. Nobody holds it for the it's long so term. It's so hard. It's yeah. so hard. And and also, like I get there's hindsight bias, and it's not as easy as it sounds. And I'm not saying I would do it, but it's still what's happening, right? Most people like they churn through stocks and companies constantly, and they, they they don't benefit much from those that do compound. It's it's insane. We were talking about business books. How few we read. I I'm gonna let you go now because I could do this all day, but I gotta have you back at some point. But one I would recommend. And to me, it's uh, it's like the yin and yang of the outsiders. The one that makes the outsiders better is called the halo effect. I think I read it.
1: It's, it's been around for a long time,
0: right? Yeah. Basically, the idea is that when a company is going well, there's this halo around it and everybody projects onto it, onto the leaders, all these qualities, right? Yep. So the I stock it. is up and like, oh, okay, uh, Toby from Shopify is a genius. He's the, he's the greatest ever. And then the stock is down and there's the reverse halo effect. Everything that's going wrong is because of Toby. Oh, we always knew we didn't have it. And the perception of people changes, like the narrative changes with the price, right? And it's also about survivorship bias because a lot of people who did the same things as the people in The Outsiders never made it. It didn't work for them, right? So you only look at the survivors, the people with work. At so I feel like both books balance each other out. Because if you only go all the way into Halo Effect, well, you may as well not believe in anything, right? It's all luck. People only say good things because it turned out to work. But <laughs> someone with the same characteristics is on the streets living in a cardboard box. And so like it's all random, basically. It's all luck. I don't think that's reality. On the other hand, if you go all the way to outside, it's like, oh, here's the formula, right? You only have to be good at capital allocation, and you buy back your stock when it's cheap, and this and that. And <laughs> it's, it's much, much harder, and it's much more complex. So that's why I feel like if you if you look at the two books together, you you get a more realistic picture of like you can still learn a ton from successful people and how they did it, but it's not the only ingredients that you need, right? Hundred percent.
1: And a lot of the lessons are actually more than like ideas to copy; it's mistakes to avoid. I really do believe in what Charlie Munger says. It's just like, if you just, had, I love that his, his commencement address was like, not here's how to have a great life, here's how to have a miserable life. And so here's the blueprint to the opposite. It's fantastic. Exactly.
0: Well, yeah, if you only avoid most of the big pitfalls, you're almost there, right? That's why I'm reading these books. I'm just trying, I'm not trying to be
1: brilliant. I'm trying to be consistently not dumb. And I think if you're consistently not dumb over a long period of time, and you don't interrupt the compounding, everything will turn out.
0: I don't think we can beat that advice. So I'm going to end on it. Thank you so much for doing this. Dude, I'll talk to you anytime you want. Like we
1: said last time, the conversations we've had that we haven't recorded, it's just fascinating talking. I love talking to people that have similar interests, different life experiences. And like I, I come away uh, learning something new every time. Anytime you want me back. Yeah, let's do it again. All right. Sounds good, man.
0: All right. Bye. Bye.